Hey guys, just want to let you know that this was all made possible and we're sponsored by MTG Matchmaker. If you ever try to get a spell table game going, can't find enough players, whether it's on the Playlist Discord or any other various webcam MTG discords out there, you know, try MTG Matchmaker. It's the first crossplay server webcam matchmaking Discord bot, and it's a 100% free tool. It queues players across all installed Discord servers so you can keep your Discord community, but you can still connect with players from others. Originally, it was designed for just EDH, but they've expanded into other popular formats, including our beloved Pioneer and Modern. To learn more, you can go on their Twitter at MTG Matchmaker, or you could also join their Discord, which we have available in the description below. to another edition of the pioneer perspective as always my name is brad and i am joined by alex alex say goodbye goodbye that's because i'm killing you tonight um someone sent help and a scientist to report brad teleporting across the ocean because that's gonna be quite the sight i think Actually, if I could have a, a superpower, it'd probably be teleportation. That or telekinesis. You know why? Telekinesis is a cheat because you can still fly. You just, you know. Yeah, you, you just do it on yourself. Yeah, you jump up, catch yourself with your mind and go zoom and you're good. And the problem with teleportation is do you teleport to a point that is like where the earth is now or does it keep in mind the movement of the earth otherwise you're gonna be like oh yeah i'll teleport to alex's house and you end up in outer space yeah that's a problem now i i like to imagine it's similar to jumper that's how i've always imagined it have you ever seen that movie starring the wonderful hayden christensen that was our beloved anakin no okay i it's i think i've seen it i'm not sure i'm trying to it's a it's not a good movie i think i've seen it i think i've seen it in the airplane which is why i haven't remembered it on like a 14-hour flight, so like... Well, all the jumpers... You start missing things. All the jumpers in that have like pictures of like their jump points. That way they can see it and visualize it better, and then they, they go there. I like to imagine that's how it works, where you need a little bit of an assistance. Um, but yeah, that would be cool. Teleportation would be dope. So, Tom Scott has a funny video on this. I think it's called something like Why Superheroes Are Boring. Like, something like that. It's It's really funny. I mean, we all know that if... I was blessed with amazing powers. I'd be a villain. Like it, there's no yes, there's no way around it. You, you mean you mean <laughs> I gotta help people? Fuck that! Great power comes great responsibility. Great power comes great fucking bank. No, Brad. No, Brad. What you do is you stay at home and you only help people in your own city. No, and like this, this very like you got the whole world. You can teleport around, but you stay in like your street. And you, like, help the neighbors who have, like, cats stuck up trees. And that's all you do with your superpower. And aside from that, you just, like, I don't know, stick around until the next thing happens. If, look, if someone was in my direct line of sight and they needed help and I had the ability to help them thanks to my powers, sure. But am I going to go out of my way, throw on some fucking tidy whities and save the day? Fuck that. I'm going to go rob a bank because I can teleport <laughs> into the vault. Okay. <laughs> That's it. I'm putting on a green man outfit where it's like the the, the entire spandex oh. thing, teleporting into the vault so the camera only sees green man, grab money, leave, and then that's it. It'd be the funniest fucking thing. And I'd have so much money. Like, there's no reason to not be a villain. 
fuck it. I'm, I'll go rob Wells Fargo. Everyone hates that fucking bank anyway. So I, I'm doing the world a favor. <laughs> All right. So we wanted to make an episode that is a little bit more like introductionary to the format. And um, I guess it's all immediately an introduction to us too, being the idiots that we are. It's the best kind, yeah. Yeah. So, as I said, uh, last week, someone sent us a question on Reddit. I'll try and put it up, but Brad and I have been talking a lot of shit backwards and forth. Um, so it was Funky Blues Man, and he asked the question, um, any chance you guys are going to do an episode for those of us coming back now that stores are starting up in person uh, in play consistency and vaccines are available? I'm planning to play this weekend for the first time in over a year. I listened to your How to Beat the Top Decks episode yesterday, and I'd love another update to partner uh, to Parter. Parter? Um, oh, another two-parter like that. And maybe some advice for taking on a new open meta and choosing a deck right now, because I have 90% of almost every deck. Uh, as an aside, you guys mentioned playing on server. Now we, uh, there you go. Um, so in that vein, we've effectively, we were thinking of an episode idea and then we got sent that question and it's like, cool, that's our next episode. Thanks. Um, we want to make a sort of introductionary thing to Pioneer. So what if, I mean, I literally had this happen to me this week so I can actually send a friend of mine this uh, episode who was like, I haven't really been in touch with Pioneer. You know, he plays on Modo. The, he also likes Modern. The Modern community is very large on Modo. So he's just been playing Modern throughout the pandemic. He's like, but I do have interest in Pioneer. But where do I start, right? What should I play? That sort of thing. So we're going to make this episode be that. So if someone is like, how do I get into Pioneer? What, 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 what type of decks are there? What should I be looking for? What deck fits me? We're going to try and answer those questions for you. So we've gone to the meta page for Goldfish, and we just went to the top 15 decks. So when you see the landing page, the 15 that you see. And we added, um, I mean, two honorable mentions, really. We'll get to it at the end. Um, but we've gone over those 15 decks, and we've gone for a couple of points. So first of all, what's the deck called? Then a general overview, like how does the deck work? What does it do? What's it, what is its style, right? Is it aggro? Is it control? That sort of thing. Then we're going to name some key cards and how they function in the deck. Then the type of player that would probably enjoy a deck like this. Um, and then a quick rundown on how do you beat this? Now, the episode this viewer mentioned, the uh, listener mentioned, the how to beat the meta episode, uh, the two-parter, that went very much into detail. Right, I think we went over, we gave at least one card in every color, multicolor and colorless, that you could run against that deck. We're not going to go into that level of detail this time. So we'll just say things like Graveyard Hate instead of, or like Counter Magic, rather than naming like specific counter spells. Like, oh yeah, this enchantment deck, you should run a No or something. It's like, no, we'll just go into Counter Magic. We will probably revisit the more in-depth two-parter um, at a later date, maybe coming months, month or two, see if we can get it done before uh, Forgotten Realms releases, which is already in like five weeks or something. So I'm not sure about that, but we'll try. And But this is like a sort of step back, this episode. It's going to be a little simpler, a little more bare bones for people who are new to the format and or getting back into the format and then when we redo the two-parter that should be targeted at more established pioneer players 
so they could sort of listen to this one be like yeah yeah i'm a good magic player i know this i want to play this deck okay now i want to get to the to the meat of things and then they can go to that episode so effectively this is the first one of a three-parter but they're not all three going to be recorded in a row because i don't know the world ends every other week so we'll probably have something to talk about next week i hope so so with that out of the way um we'll just get into it i've done a sort of small write-up you know brad will chip in we'll have a little bit of back and forth it's written to be short and sweet but it's me and brad and as you've already literally seen by the intro we don't do short and sweet it always turns into long right you have if if you need to be stuck in a traffic jam in order to listen to an entire episode commuting sorry yeah yeah that's that's fair or you have a very long commute, and or your job is to drive. So, you know, I hope you don't have that long of a commute. True. I've had that. Alex, have you ever had a commute that's like an hour or so for like a job? No. It's, actually. it's not great. Especially like I would go to downtown Tampa, the Kennedy Boulevard, when I was working as a produce manager for Sprouts. And uh, yeah, that was not fun. It sucked. Yeah, but Amer- Americans drive or like travel way longer then I think the Dutch are like some of the people that travel, like are the least willing to travel because relatively speaking, things are far away on like a short time frame, right? I've heard people talk like, oh yeah, I went to this magic event and it was like a six hour drive. And it's like a six hour drive takes me from the north to the south of the country and back, right? So it's really long for us. We're like six hours. That is an eternity. You know, I'll take it. An- Doesn't that just take you to like other countries too? Oh, yeah, easily. It drives you, like, to Paris in six hours, I think, easily. Shit, dude, if I could go to Paris in six hours, it'd be fucking dope. Sounds great. <laughs> like, I can go, I, from here in six hours, I could drive to London, I can drive to Berlin, I can drive to Paris. See, that's that's bullshit. That, that's uh, why I'm jealous of, like, the, the way the structure <laughs> is of, like, the EU. Because in six hours, I can get to, like, bumfuck Georgia. And that that's it. And look, look, no offense to anyone that's from Georgia. Georgia's fine. I like Atlanta. I like a lot of places in Georgia. Um, but eh, you, you have Georgia on one hand. Oh, let's get some peaches. Or I can go to a different country. Fair. Um, so with that, uh, actually, because my, uh, my parents have a second house in Portugal where they're going to retire. Um, they bought like a small apartment. Um, and my brother actually drove there with my dad to leave one of the cars there. And that was a, I think it took them five days. And in that time with stops, they went through Belgium, France, Spain, and then Portugal in just a span of five days. So yeah, jealous. Good road, good road trips in Europe. Uh, anyway, actually going into the game right now. So top decks, I've, I've just gone top to bottom how they come up. So they are in theory, in order of most common to least common. But I think all these decks have a meta share of at least 2.8%, I think. So they're all reasonable. And we'll see, like, some of the decks are, like, up-and-coming decks, so you'll probably see them more. But the first deck we're going to talk about is Spirits. Now, Spirits, as a general archetype, is a aggro-slash-tempo-style deck. It uses a lot of flying creatures and abilities to tap down your opponent's stuff in order to basically ignore combat. In that way, it's really good at racing. Even if I'm playing a deck like Elves, which is a on-ground aggro deck, which tends to have creatures, or maybe not Elves, but other decks, at a better rate, 
spirits will just constantly be tapping them down, flying over you, disrupting you, and in that way, while still having a strong aggro game plan. So some of the key cards are mainly the disruptive cards really set spirits apart. So we're talking about like Mausoleum Wanderer, which, you know, can sacrifice itself to like spell pierce something. Uh, Rattle Change, which enables the deck to have flash on all its creatures. Uh, spell Queller, Watcher of the Spheres, and sometimes Collected Company if we're talking about Banned Spirits. The type of... Yeah, sorry. Side note, if you get to play Banned Spirits, you get to play Permeating Mass on the sideboard, which is a spirit and is uh, is really cute to bring in for some matchups and pretty cool. I like that card a lot. Such a strange card, but really cool in that way. Um, the type of player. So you probably... Uh, if you come from modern, you are very much aware of how this archetype works because it's already shown up in modern. Now, there it has some additional cards like Droxkull Captain, Phantasmal Image, uh, Noble Hierarch, Aether Vial that do make the deck different, but you'll get the gist of it after playing uh, playing the modern version. It's the idea of you probably like playing blue and you want to have some sort of permission, disruption, but control is not really your style. And you like playing with creatures, but you don't really like combat and you prefer to just ignore combat. And that is basically what Spirits does for you. Now, if we're talking about how to beat Spirits, Spirits has the interesting thing, and that's it's an archetype based on flying. And flying has actually had specific ways to interact with it in Magic's past. So there are some cards, like uh, Windstorm, or Heaven and Earth, and then the Heaven side, which specifically are very good on-raid cards that deal damage specifically to flyers. This means that, first of all, like Windstorm is an instant speed spell, which is green X, deal X damage to all creatures with flying. That means, A, you've got a way to interact with flyers, and B, you're able to make it one-sided if your deck doesn't have them. Um, and then there is some specific cards. Uh, Shifting Ceratops can give itself reach and is a very big body. Uh, Sky Splitter, I think it's called, or Sky Piercer. Uh, two mana, two two, uncounterable, pro uh, reach, pro blue, very good blocker, and it's a blue deck, so dispute and whatever other anti-blue things you could find. Now, is there anything you want to add about spirits, Brad? Before we just move along, uh, if you want to know how to play spirits at the most efficient level, go ahead and go bother Traft over on Twitter. He will gladly give you a write-up on the deck or just browse through his Twitter account. You can find previous write-ups in general. He is the best spirits player in Pioneer. Yeah, well, spirits uh, very much dipped in popularity for a very long time. And I think Draft pretty much single-handedly kept it on the metagame page. Yes. Now, Draft prefers, at least uh, at the time of this recording, it's my most recent knowledge, still prefers Azorius over the Coco variant. Um, but, that could change, and it is a meta decision. And one thing I do want to add before we go further with all the other decks, we are recording this on June 15th, 2021. So if you're listening to this recording in the future and you're looking at the meta page game, uh, the, the meta game page on Goldfish alongside listening to this, uh, our, this podcast, and you see Band Spirits not there or not the top deck or whatever, or you see Azori Spirits, the one on top. Understand that there is an asterisk next to all these decks in a sense. Um, and we'll be sure to highlight some decks that aren't mainstays in the format. Like, for example, if we recorded this a year ago, 
we might have said, you know, Ensel Artifact or like Scissors, like Is It Scissors, would, would have maybe made our list of like talking about, but that deck's been gone for, for quite a while. So we don't know what the future holds and what new cards are going to bring, but for now, and by actually, I hope by the end of the year or so, we do another update on this. But otherwise, welcome to Pioneer. We hope you find a deck that works for you. And Spirits is a great place to start. Now, starting with another very, well, leading off with another very popular deck is Niv to Light. Um, for a while, it's probably the deck that people are most familiar with when they hear about Pioneer, and it's not for the best reasons. Um, Niv to Light, for a while, has been the boogeyman of the format. After Inverter's ban, it's been pretty much the most played deck most of the time, though it has fallen off recently, but it's obviously still a very good, respectable deck. Um... This is, I mean, again, if you've played Modern, you've seen this card. If you've played Standard in the past two years, you've seen someone brew with this and fail. Um, it is just the grindy control haymaker deck. This is literally just removal, mana, and big stuff that gives you card advantage. This is like as close to Commander as you're going to get in a constructed format. Yeah. Um so it's two namesake cards. This will make up the name of the deck. It is um, Niv-Mizzet, uh, Niv-Mizzet Reborn from War of the Spark, which is the five mana one that finds you guild-colored cards in your top ten, which is just a huge haymaker. This comes down and it draws you like a four spells. And again, it's all removal, Dreadbores, Vanishing Verses, uh, Nahiris, all these type of cards. And is a flying 6-6 six, six to boot, so that's nothing to scoff at. And is a flying 6-6, six, six, right? So it actually ends games relatively quickly if left unanswered. So you're going to have to go through the feels bad of using a removal spell to one-for-one one a card that drew your opponent four spells. Um, and it combines it with Bring to Light, which is a card with Converge, which is basically, uh, it's five mana, the amount of mana you different colored mana you spend on it, you can grab a, I think it's instant sorcery or creature with a CMC less than or equal to the amount of color spent on it. So the max you can do is spend five different colors on it because there's only five colors in magic and then find yourself a five drop. Well, Niv happens to be a five drop, but it utilizes Bring to Light with a bunch of toolbox cards. It can find a couple of different sweepers, it can find extraction effects. It can find um, Valky, obviously, with the interaction that hasn't been fixed because they only fixed Cascade, not the interaction with double-faced cards. So this could also be something that just breaks in the future. Um, but again, big haymakers, lots of card drawing, lots of value. Uh, if you're the type of person that enjoys mid-range that isn't really mid-range because it runs a little bit too much removal and a few too many four and five drops... This is actually the deck you are thinking of, and you're going to love this if you do. Um, again, like long grindy games, you like playing control, but you hate this draw go thing. And you're like, oh, I remember like Counts of Tarkir. I played like Esper Control with like six mana Sorin and a couple of dragons, and like that was really my jam. You're going to like this. So, how you beat Niv is fairly straightforward. Uh, first of all, your game plan should probably never include outgrinding them, because you won't. Um, you're going to need hand disruption, counter magic, a fast clock. That's the type of thing that gets you there. Hence why Spirits has actually overtaken it, because it is both an aggressive deck with disruption elements, which is pretty perfect against Niftal. 
And if you want to get better at playing Niv and you choose to play this deck, I have another person you can go find and talk to. And I'm going to actually probably try to have someone you can talk to and have all of their contact information in the description of this episode. It's uh, Sean B with the uh, Playaway Discord server is uh, our go-to for when it comes to Niv. He has been playing this deck for, I believe, a year now. And there's also the Niv uh, Discord server that's all about five-color Niv. So you can check that out, too. And there's also uh, Claudio on Twitter. Oh, of course, Claudio. Which is a uh, ma- magic streamer, which has been pretty much the torch carrier for this deck in the um, Magic Gathering online scene. Yep. Right. If you see someone play Stock Niv, that probably means that someone's copying Claudio's list. Um, though Claudio did top eight with another deck this weekend, which we will talk about later. Uh, but moving on to my jam, though I do tend to uh, splash another color, Demir Control. So Demir Control is the classic Drawgo control deck of this format. It runs instant speed removal, counter magic, card draw, very few win conditions, and it just removal, counters, removal, counters, two for one you, two for one you, and now I'll think about winning the game. Um, its key cards are the things you would expect, uh, Fatal Push, Thoughtseize, Dick Through Time as one of the best draw spells, like in the history of magic, um, Shark Typhoon for its instant speed win condition and backup, uh, and some suite of counter magic. This tends to be cancels with upsides, negates, sensors, that sort of thing. So the type of player, I mean, if you ask your average magic player what type of player is control deck, they probably tell you it's an asshole. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> to be kind to my own kind, um, it's just, you just enjoy the puzzle, really. Like, every every turn has decisions. You enjoy bluffing, because bluffing is a large part of magic, but sometimes, to me, it feels like an exceptionally large part of control, where, you know, control really gets into people's heads. You have three mana up, and you just pass. Your opponent's like, yeah, counterspell. And that type of gameplay, if that's something you enjoy, you can bait people, that sort of thing. You're really going to like playing control. Again, you're... You're probably already a magic player if you're listening to this. You're familiar with control. This is your draw-go control. So how to beat it? I mean, low-to-the-ground aggro always has a chance against control because it might not. they might have to spend early game drawing cards. Maybe the one-for-one doesn't work. Thoughtseize is generally not as good of a card against aggro if they run it, which they have been more and more again recently. Uh, cheap interaction or threats with building protection. Right? Nothing's going to... You know, mess up a control player's plan more than you playing an early game creature with reasonable power that they can't kill. You know, maybe you're finding some cards like uh, Apostle of Purifying Light, which is just a 2-mana, 2-1 pro-black. And if they don't counter it, which they can't if you're on the play, and they don't draw any of their three sweepers or something, they literally can't kill it and it might just clock them single-handedly. While at the same time eating their graveyard, which might be relevant. The, As Brad gives me a confused look. Sorry, control decks are too much of a. Uh, I don't know. Like I enjoy control decks, and uh, but I'm I'm definitely not the one to like master them. I I think I just don't have the I don't have the patience. That's what it is. Like I, and you can attest to this. Playing a, a tournament, though. <laughs> as I say this, 
Uh, I was also the Kethis player. But playing a tournament for like, I was about to say, <laughs> eight hours on a control deck is like agonizing on your brain. Um, but yeah, so was combo. Or at least convoluted Kethis combo. At that. Yeah, the, the thing with control and with some convoluted combos is that it barely ever has like these games that feel free, right? And that's not to say, you know, sometimes that gives people the illusion that like control is like, oh, you're if you're smart, you play control, which is bullshit, right? Like, you know, I, I probably make a hundred mistakes playing a burn deck, which is generally considered an easy deck, which I don't think is true at all. But burn has these occasional games where you just go like Swift Spear, Swift Spear, Wild Slash you, Boros Charm you, Wild Slash you, Boros Charm you, you're dead. Okay, cool. You didn't draw a piece of removal, you're dead. Right and control never has these games basically, except for the free ones where like your opponent's mana screwed and they give up. But in that way, control can be super exhausting. Um, you could say fun for your casual Friday night magic, unless you have a very busy nine to five job and you're tired every Friday evening. You should probably pick something else, unless you just really like it and then it will give you energy as it does for me. Though after seven rounds of a GP, I was really tired. Anyway, we have got 12 more decks to talk about. So, moving on to another deck that probably makes a billion decisions every game is Is It Phoenix? People who've played Historic are probably tired of this already. But we don't have Brainstorm, we don't have Faceless Looting, don't worry about it. So, Phoenix is a deck that's also been like, you know, a very famous deck. Also in Modern, it was very good for a long t- for a while until they banned Faceless Looting. Uh, now very good in Historic. Popular and standard, just as something people wanted to make work and never could. This deck uses a ton of cantrips, so a lot of opts, or sometimes crash through, uh, all these type of cards that just, it's a spell that draws you a card. And it uses these spells to get extra benefit. The main one, what it's named after, is to bring out Arclight Phoenix, because if it's in your graveyard, you cast three instants or sorceries, it comes back for free. So, you're spinning your wheels constantly having seven cards in hand as phoenix players always tend to do but things happen your game plan is progressing while you're doing this um some of the key cards in this deck uh, obviously arclight phoenix uh sometimes we have joked that it is actually a crackling drake deck because crackling drake can literally just get 20 power and one shot someone um and one of the main things that fuels this deck in pioneers treasure cruise which is literally ancestral recall accepted sorcery speed yeah if you look at if you look at this deck whether you are a player that does not like is a phoenix and historic or you're a player that's like i like the historic version why should i play pioneers version instead i have an answer that is the same for both of you it's treasure cruise we don't have faithless looting and brainstorm but we do have treasure cruise which is arguably it's funny to say it but it's a much fairer card in this concept uh context than the other two right like isn't phoenix still the top deck right now in historic as of uh, this recording and people are like when the band announcement came out or they banned uh uh what's the uh the the, the extra turn spell that historic got time warp. yeah they banned that everyone's like but but phoenix is still really good all right, guess go play Phoenix. Yeah, it is the top deck at 15.7% according to Goldfish at the time of recording. It's still very good. It's not going to be that powerful in Pioneer in comparison, but it's still good enough where if you're a good pilot, but yeah. 
it is a strong deck. And how I described it is you're the type of player that just likes to take a lot of game actions. Like, Phoenix has a lot of game actions that aren't very... Well, they're, they make a lot of interesting decisions, but a lot of them are sort of like, quote-unquote, simple, right? Opt, scry, draw a card, strategic planning. Look at, the look, look at the top three, put one in your hand the rest into your graveyard. But you're just doing a lot of things. You're drawing a lot of cards, you're discarding a lot of cards, you're spinning your wheels a lot. And I think an interesting thing about Phoenix is that Phoenix is a deck that sculpts its hand which is actually not something that we see a lot. We, I know very often we talked, uh, a thing that people used to say is like, you know, modern is played more on the battlefield. Again, this is an older statement. Modern is played more on the battlefield where legacy is played in the hand. Um, and Phoenix is a deck that can really do that because the correct decision with Phoenix isn't always to bring your Phoenix out as soon as possible. But thinking, I can bring out one Phoenix this turn or two next turn if I, you know, line these spells up differently. Uh, but obviously, because you're regularly drawing cards, this sort of puzzle constantly changes. So you're now thinking, okay, this, you know, I'm going to do it in this way. And you draw your card for turn, and it's an opt. You're like, well, this changes everything. And you're going to have to rethink that puzzle. And if that's something you enjoy, then you're going to love Phoenix. The only thing that I always find frustrating, having played a little bit of it on, like, Arena and stuff, is the potential randomness of if my four phoenixes are at the bottom of my deck it feels like i'm spinning my deck for nothing spinning my wheels for nothing but that's something you're gonna you know have to live with and you know get rid of your biases and then think of the games where all your phoenixes are in the top 15 cards of your deck and how easy those wins feel yeah and this kind of goes back to like just overall deck construction it's why you have the fallback plan of crackling drake and it's why you may see the deck completely evolve moving forward at some point um just into something else like more backup plans maybe they play stormwing entity or something or maybe they do they right now we see uh we have a uh a, we have a phoenix player on our discord I, I don't know has risen been on the podcast yet he has not i don't think so no uh he is our uh, our phoenix players he basically came back to pioneer because it allowed him to play phoenix and he's been experimenting with Thing in the Ice, Sprite Dragon, having, like, more backup win conditions. We'll talk about um, Izzet Blitz in a little bit, that even still plays an Izzet Shell in a very similar vein, but actually stopped running Arclight Phoenix in favor of other cards to sort of get more consistency in your deck favored over, like, the high roll, low roll that Phoenix can sometimes do. Yeah, and as far as... Uh... And as far as people on Twitter or Twitch go for Phoenix, um, normally Ekros has been a vampire player, but lately he's been playing a lot of Visit Phoenix. Um, I think that's the last thing I've, the only thing I've been seeing him play for the last like month and a half, two months now. Um, MTGO, MTGO Grinders will always be able to help you out. So watch some gameplay on Ekros, or if you're on the Playway server, talk to Risen. Either way. So beat, going about beating Phoenix, um, the mistake people often make against phoenix is that they bring in rest in peace and they think they're good you're not because phoenix is prepared for that especially backup plans in the board like sprite dragon thing in the ice having crackling drake which actually um counts instant sorceries in exile too they are prepared to win a game without casting a phoenix so just dealing with the Phoenix plan alone, that's not going to work. Now, it does 
help. But maybe don't think rest in peace, think cling to dust or scavenging ooze. A card like that and back that up with some removal, right? If you kill a phoenix, but then you eat it with a scavenging ooze, you're actually fine, right? That you don't have the large card disadvantage that you might have against Phoenix. Or, easier even, just play exile-based removal. We saw Phoenix have a little bit of a struggle right after Strixhaven, when all the Niv decks were just packing four Vanishing Verse. And it was just like, I'm spinning my wheels, a Phoenix hits the field, they spend two mana and the Phoenix is gone. Now what do I do? And they had to constantly default to this Crackling Drake backup plan. And that type of removal, if you're playing like, you know, the previous deck, Demir Control, and you're struggling a lot in your Phoenix matchup, maybe your sweeper should be Extinction Event if it's something else. Maybe you should consider running Billful Mastery or more copies of uh, Cling to Dust. Like I've been running two to pair up with other cards, but, you know, no time to talk about that this episode. Um, and that sort of thing can then help you out because the XL-based removal is actually really powerful in this deck. Where it hasn't been super relevant in a lot of matchups, this is definitely one where it is. Then, moving on to the next deck that I alluded to. Ernest, you want to touch on something, uh, Brad? Nope. Phoenix is uh, it is a deck. We'll see if it's still here in uh, six months' time. I have no idea what to expect with that. I think a thing to, um, to mention before we move on, because you know I should have probably done this at the start. Obviously, again, I'm talking like type of player, that sort of thing. How would you enjoy this? Some of this is just my interpretation. I haven't played every dis every type of deck like this. I am not every type of person. <laughs> so maybe I have a completely different read on what type of person would enjoy this. But I feel like playing, talking to people, I have a reasonable grasp on it. But maybe you're like, hey, I love this deck and I'm totally not this type of person. Sure, that makes sense. And, you know, if anyone has anything to add on this, you know, we generally post this onto Reddit or Twitter and if you have some sort of feedback on this episode, I think this is the perfect episode to do so. Where you're like, hey, I actually think this thing of it, or I would like to add this, or I really think a new player should know this going into Pioneer because I have 200 games with this deck and I know what I'm talking about. If you do, please let me know. I would love to start next episode with like a 15-minute segment of like, here's things we should have definitely said last episode. So if you're listening to this later move to next week's episode, where we'll start off with the 15-minute section of what we should have said this week. Anyway, Burn. Burn is a very classic uh, magic archetype, and one I don't really have to explain much. Really, my initial notes were just upstairs, explanation point, because that's really what Burn does. Some amount of creatures, but once the creatures have dealt a sufficient amount of damage, you're just going to start pointing Burn upstairs. Boros Charms, Lightning Strikes, Wild Slashes, uh, that sort of thing. Um, in that way, Burn is a deck that always meets to exciting games. Because if you're playing Mono Green Stompy and your opponent's on two, well, every time you play a creature, you have to wait to untap and then attack. If you're playing Burn, every draw step is scary. Right, I've, I've played enough games against Burn, and I'm sure you haven't. Anyone who's played Magic in a format where Burn is a thing have had these games where you're on three, and you're thinking, I need to fade two draw steps, but there's like 17 Burn spells left in their deck. Mm -hmm. And every once in a while, they actually draw three lands, and you feel like you literally stole the game. Um, so, key cards within Burn. 
Monastery Swift Spear, which is one of the better prowess creatures we've ever had. Uh, Boral's Charm, because it's two, two mana to deal four, which is a lot of burn damage. And Light Up the Stage, which is a thing that they tend to use for card advantage. These are some of the key cards that burn utilizes. So the type of person who would enjoy playing burn is definitely the type of person that doesn't like long games. Like, that's the, the short end of it. Burn games tend to be over soon. Uh, maybe more in older formats, but still. Um, I've written down here, which sounds a little bit silly in hindsight. If you enjoy the post-game chat with your opponent more than the actual game, you should definitely play Burn. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, I mean, I don't know. Because, like, I I've seen people get pretty salty. after. Like, Okay, there's, there's two decks I see people get salty the most about after their games the first is control the second is burn hi so like those are decks where like people don't want to talk about like uh like oh what do you think about this line of play i i did this or whatever and they're just like you just killed me on turn five shut the fuck up like <laughs> fair fair i mean it depends on the type of story about right yeah like, and the one thing about this deck is it's i've had a guy duress me see a crap hand and could see the match and walk off <laughs> because they just didn't want to play against control it's like okay buddy one thing about burn and the type of player i think would appreciate burn and there's other decks that are like this but the word that comes to mind is efficiency when i think of burn you look at these lists and they're usually really neat organized all the way through the 75 a lot of four ofs um a lot of like it's just nice even round numbers and alex said it best you just you kill your opponent really fast now it does not mean this deck is the easy deck to play we alluded to it earlier not at all um you have those games where you're like hey you didn't have removal i guess i just win and that's great but this is not that deck where it's like, haha, math is for the blockers. Uh, no, you need to do math. You really need to do math. Not only should you know how to do math of this deck in the sense of like understanding when to attack, when to hold back, when to use your burn spell, when to use it on a creature versus opponent's face. Nine times out of ten, it's your opponent's face, by the way, if you want a little tip. The other thing is you should get pretty good at counting cards because it's actually a big deal in this deck. And what I mean by that is like counting cards like blackjack. Like, what's the probability of, you know, you pulling a burn spell here? What's the probability of you doing this? Do you, do you hold up this, uh, this interaction? Do you, you know, push forward? Um, does this decision you make attacking into two potential blockers, um, I'm sorry, with one potential blocker that's going to eat one of your creatures when you have two attackers, but you're getting in an extra two points of damage, is that going to be worth it three turns from now when you haven't drawn the spells you needed or is it going to be the exact damage you needed to win three turns from now when the opponent had a lethal to turn after that the deck is full of that type of line of thinking and uh be ready for that it's not just a walk in a park still a fun deck though no i i think and this this applies to you know aggro in general but you know I, I always find burn burn has more of this because there's the do i go upstairs or do i point it at a creature thing which could make a big difference making the correct call um is that in an aggro deck um you make fewer decisions in a game due to the length of the game which means that mistakes are generally punished harder obviously there are mistakes that instantly lose you a game they're punished a lot but i have definitely played games with like control where let's say i have to make 50 decisions in a game and if my eighth decision is wrong 
I have another 42 decisions to solve that problem that I created myself. If you play Burn and your third card is a mistake, you only have seven decisions left in order to fix that. And you might not be able to, right? I've done things early in Control where like, oh, I shouldn't have let this card resolve. I should have sequenced this differently. But now I play a sweeper and, you know, I have to play with a card less. But, you know, throughout the game, I can manage, I can plan that. Okay, sure, I can fix my mistake. In Burn, it's like, oh, that, that Burn spell should have definitely gone upstairs and now I've lost. Happens more. So, how to beat Burn? Now, Burn is generally, like, you need uh, cheap removal. Because the, bur the creatures in Burn decks are really important. Because your average burn spell will do, except for Boros Charm, like two or three damage. Where the creatures can definitely end up getting in for four, five, six damage. And they're the type of thing that then gives the burn spells the reach to actually kill you. Right? We always, uh, you know, the, the, the joke in modern, at least at like my local uh, LGS, is used to be always like for burn players, like, oh, haha, seven times, you know, seven times three is 21, which is more than 20, you won. But an opening hand with, like, three op three mountains and four lava spikes for modern is actually a bad hand because it's only 12 damage. So you need to be, you need that to be, like, three mountains, two lava spikes, uh, three lava spikes, and a goblin guide. Again, talk about modern one we'd have here. We talk about, like, wild slash Boros charm, monastery swift spirit, that sort of thing. But... Because you need the creatures to do that initial hit while your opponent doesn't hasn't established any blockers. So in order to beat burn, you need to kill the early creatures. And then you wanna play some good blockers. You might be able to find like a pro-red blocker. That's good. In blue, we'd have something like Cerulean Drake. In white, we have something like Oh, there's the Fiend Slayer Paladin, but no one plays it anymore because Luris makes it so you can't play it um but like those type of cards so you've got good blockers preferably with um some protection building that would be nice but it don't have to be sometimes the protection can just be having four toughness and then you probably want to have life gain but preferably stapled onto your blocker right a card that people have regularly brought in against uh burn i mean sure they generally come prepared for it because they expect it but it's a card like kalidus Four mana, three, four lifelink, can grow to be larger, uh, gives you more blockers when you kill their creatures, which means they basically have to rely on burn. But meanwhile, Kalidus is swinging in and gaining you life. That is like the perfect style card to bring in against a uh, mono red style deck. Or maybe a different card, like something like Enter the God Eternals. It kills a creature, it gains you life, it gives you a blocker, it kind of does everything in that way. And those are the type of cards you would look Downside at. is it does it on turn five, which could be too late. Another thing you can do, if you want a deck to flat out go against burn, let's say you're at your LGS and there's four people there that play burn. You're like, I don't want to see this every single matchup. And you're like, you know what? I want to just metagame it. Play vampires. Now, vampires does not appear in our top 15 decks. Um, oddly enough, it's other mono black counterpart in mono black aggro doesn't either, but we'll talk about that regardless. Vampires is built in, ready to take on burn. The amount of life game you a life gain you have in that deck between 
Gifted Aetherborn, uh, Soar and Pumping Creatures giving it life gain. Yep, Kalidus. Um, and then just big bodies filling the board. Even Callus uh, uh, Blood Mage has pseudo life gain if you make the pest. Um, it's, it's a good deck. And all the removal to come with it, as well as Murderous Rider, which I think in general, because you talked about having, you know, if you're playing a control deck, for example, and you're going against uh, Is a Phoenix, well, maybe you should rethink what type of, you know, sweeper you're running, Extinction Event, instead of like Shadows Verdict or things like that. Um, or run Baleful Mastery instead of, um, you know, other types of black removal. In this sense, if you can squeeze in a Murderous Rider or two, now the removal side of it, is at parts detrimental and it kind of goes against you because you lose two life on killing a creature. But sometimes if you do that early enough and then get down the Murder Rider as a nice blocker where they have to then use their burn spell on Murder Rider, in a way it saves you one life. Think about it that way. It's kind of like the Thoughtseize argument that I've heard, which I don't agree with, but people will say, if you Thoughtseize the burn player and take their bolt... I just saved one life, <laughs> which I mean is at the cost of one mana. Yeah, it's technically true. Um, we're murder strider. I mean, that would mean healing solve is a good card against burn, which it's not. Oh, what's the white one? I mean, I guess, I guess if your healing solve would work if you're literally specifically like your LGS is full of burn players, but the one card I wanted to add, if we're thinking about a specific card is and this mainly goes in modern but this definitely goes in pioneer maybe even more is collective brutality it is probably single-handedly the best anti-burn card it's the worst thing that could happen to burn in terms of a card being printed because you could discard your high cmc cards which you wouldn't even get to if the burn player was going to kill you minus two minus two kills all their one drops uh, draining for two counteracts a lot of their burn spells because in Pioneer we're forced to run burn spells that deal two damage so it actually counteracts a full burn spell and you get to duress, semi-duress your opponent which might take another burn spell perfect card kind of poor against a lot of other aggro decks which is why it doesn't show up that often but when burn is big pack your collective brutality if you've played modern you own these <laughs> and for those of you who are yeah, for those of you who are budget players and are not coming from modern and don't happen to own these, because Collective Brutality is, you know, it's not the cheapest card. It's not super expensive, but it's not, you know, nothing. A good alternative that you might have lying around, especially if you played in past standards, would be Moment of Craving from Ixalan. Um, Moment of Craving is great because it basically has two of the modes from Collective Brutality without having to discard a card. And it's instant speed. Yep, and you can get the foils for like 20 cents in comparison to like six bucks a pop for Brutality. Or actually, it might be more than that now. Either way, good budget alternative. Yes, definitely. Uh, very nice ad. Um, now we've gone to a deck we actually haven't... It's still there, I guess, just like one of its main cards. It just doesn't really die. Is Rectos Pyromancer. Now, again, anyone who is familiar with... Any other format, I think it's still, at least it used to be a deck in Historic. I haven't, I don't play a lot of Historic. It's still a deck in Historic. It has, it has Faithless Looting, Alex. Uh, why would it not be a deck now? Oh, yes. <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah. So, um, in Historic, uh, a couple years ago, Mardu Pyromancer in Modern. Oh, yeah, and they just got K-Command, okay. Um, is a extremely grindy mid-range deck. 
It runs a ton of hand attack, a ton of removal, and a lot of threats that generate value if they're not killed. Right? Things like Rec the Pyromancer itself, uh, Arcanist, Kroxa, if they're not dealt with, they will just single-handedly win the game because they will just bury you in value. Especially Kroxa. Um, like, nothing feels worse than, like, the Arcanist, the Arcanist sticks. They go, like, turn one Stitcher Supplier, turn two Arcanist. You don't kill it. And they go, Thought Seize, attack you, Thought Seize you again. Mm -hmm. That's the type of draws that instantly end games. Um, so it just, again, grindy value deck, extra tokens, two for ones, a lot of discard. Um, very interactive game, but not a counter magic interactive game. Key cards from the deck are the cheap black cards, Fatal Push, Thoughtseize, uh, you know, then we've got Dreadhorde Arcanist, Young Pyromancer, and Kroxa, kind of the bread and butter of the deck. Um, I'm thinking of the type of player, again, who would enjoy this? Now, I described it as, you enjoy the grind like a Niv player, but you want to play on a lower curve, because that's just a style that a lot of people like. Lots of cheap cards, you know, we see like CDH, Modern, obviously Legacy has a lot of this, where you really enjoy, like, your opening hand has two lands in it, and you think, oh, I can cast every spell in my deck, right? If that is a style that you like, you know, maybe you want to, like, discard lands to things, or, I don't know, you want to grind the value with all of cheap cards, nickel and dime your opponent out of the game, you are going to like this deck. It's super grindy, super cheap, low CMC, so you're not going to be mana screwed as often, where like, oh, I didn't hit my six land to hit my Torrential Gearhawk. That never really happens in Pyromancer, which is a thing people can enjoy. Yeah, you also like this deck if you are coming from Historic and you've played this deck already on there. It is quite literally, with the exception of Faithless Looting, the same deck. And you do gain Dreadbore, uh, would become this way. And um, some extra cyborg pieces, collective brutality, things like that. You'll also really like this deck if you just miss playing Uro. If you miss escaping a scary Titan. Now, Croxa is not Uro, thank God. But it's still a Titan. And that's reason enough to play the deck. On the power of Croxa alone... It's worth considering. Now, Crocs is pushable, of course, but, you know. It's pretty much the only deck that actually uses Croxa. At the moment, yeah, it is. Which is kind of surprising, because Uro was everywhere, and Croxa is still a really powerful card. And people were a little bit worried, like, oh, now that Uro's gone, is it just, isn't Croxa just going to be everywhere? And actually, no, but it is in this deck. And the fact that it isn't everywhere is a plus for this deck. Yeah, I mean... How could people not see that coming, though? Like, Croxa maybe disadvantages or hurts your opponent a little bit, while Uro just gains you advantage against them, guaranteed. That's like, I've never understood the comparison between the two. It's like, yeah, Croxa's where they should have designed Uro at. Yeah, but I mean, a 4-mana four, a four 6-6 six, six, six that basically, I mean, if Croxa attacks you, your chance to win just dipped by a lot. So just this 4-mana 6-6 six, six that can endlessly come back, and is never allowed to attack you is scary. Now, one thing about Crooks I want to say real quick before we move on. Um, there is a deck that I played a lot that I liked a lot. Um, it's Jund uh, Delirium. And, of course, you play Crocs in that deck. It's the mirrored version of um, the old Delirium show when we had Uro. Now, the deck's not amazing. It's not in the format right now. It needs some more Delirium pieces or whatever. Um, 
However, if you play a deck in that sense or in that style, it does present a interesting decision when you're sideboarding, which you can apply across the board with other decks. But I use Crocs as an example because we're talking about this now. When you're playing Delirium, and if you're playing like the type I did, where it's more of like toolbox Delirium, where you're trying to search out bigger creatures like Ishkana, uh, Glorybringer, maybe you're playing a Hazoret, or uh, like you're getting a Towers Tracker, or um, things like that, just more bigger threats. Your opponent might be playing a deck where they're running things like Fatal Push. Now, for this deck, Rectus Pyromancer, your opponent's going to keep in Fatal Push because it hits all of your creatures, including Croxa. But in a deck like Jundelirium, where Croxa is the only actual push target that you care about, they're not going to waste push on Seder Wayfinder or things like that. Um, you put your opponent in this weird position where you could maybe side out a Croxa and you force them to be in a rock and a hard place or in between a rock and a hard place and trying to figure out, do you keep in fatal push? Because now fatal push is only good against one card. albeit that one card is very good in general, where if you go into this other game plan where they just have a dead card against everything else, you're actually hurting your opponent as well. So anytime you can take that mindset and apply it to other decks and try to think in that realm of, uh, you know, 3D chess or 4D chess kind of thing against your uh, your opponent, uh, it's always worth considering. But it just made me think of it because Crocs is awesome. Yeah. So to to end on this deck, so how do we how do we go about a, a beating Rectal Spiderman? This is probably the only one where my how to beat it. I just genuinely thought one well, of these things sound stupid, but it's actually true. So we're starting with resilient, cheap removal, uh, resilient threats. I mean, you need, sometimes there are certain threats. I mean, we've seen it now like in Modern Horizons where we got the blah, blah, Ilvec, recover Ilvec or something, the two mana, two, two, pro black, pro red. Yeah. Uh, just those type of creatures can be awfully frustrating for this deck to deal with uh, because it's very reliant on, you know, using this removal. We've seen cards like Blood Baron of Fiscopa out of Nivnex uh, sometimes, which is get like almost become almost impossible to deal with and these cards are potentially strong they're not probably going to carry you single-handedly but they're good finishers because ragdoll's pyromancer runs so much removal that at one point and hand attack you're like man but i do have to win the game at some point so if you lean into the other things like having uh cheap removal which are definitely going to need to stop the value pieces because once they're one for ones turn into one for ones that's one something you can win if they're one-for-ones turn into two-for-ones, now it's getting a little bit difficult. And my third point, and it's true, it's just it's good top-decking, which sounds stupid, but a deck full of removal and hand attack is really bad against creatures with huge enter-the-battlefield effects like Niv. And the one thing Pyromancer cannot interact with is with the top of your opponent's deck. So... Obviously, you can't magically top deck better, but you can play a deck that is good at top decking, like Niv, that doesn't require to have like two pieces to work together, because that doesn't work. But if your deck is full of individually powerful cards, you can use that to bury this deck, because they can go one for one, one for one, sometimes a two for one. You top deck a Niv, slam it four for one them, you're in the driver's seat again. 
Yeah. And unlike the other graveyard-centric deck in the format being Phoenix, this one cares way more about those Rest in Peace or those uh, Soul Guy Lanterns, Tormod Scripts. Yes. Like, this is far more graveyard-centric of a deck than Phoenix's. This this deck doesn't have the Crackling Drake backup plan because your plan A... Basically, you're, you're, this is your plan. Fill the yard, value them with Arcanist, get value, go wide with Pyromancer, escape Croxa, and just kill them faster. Like, that is the plan of the deck. Yeah, the only card that doesn't rely on the yard is Pyromancer. Yeah. So if they play a rest in peace and push your Pyromancer, your your Arcanist is a 2-mana 1-3. It doesn't do anything. Which is why we see three copies of Feed the Swarm in the sideboard of most of these lists, which is a card I've been pounding the table saying you should play more of these if you play Pyromancer. And they finally are. Good for them. So moving on to a deck that is color pie-wise almost the exact opposite. We're talking Green-White Company. Now... Green-White Company, obviously named after Collected Company, which is one of the mainstay cards of the deck. It is a creature-based beatdown deck. I think it runs about, like, 30 to 32 creatures in standard lists. Uh, And all of them cost three or less. And then it combines it with Collected Company to basically just go for beatdowns. But where this deck differentiates is that its beatdown isn't just high-power creatures where it ends the game quickly, like it looks to end the game on turn four, but it looks to end the game on, like, turn 6, but you can't do anything until turn 7, which is too late because you just died on turn 6. Through cards like Elite Spellbinder, Archon of Emeria, Voice of Resurgence, these type of cards, and just play a lot of disruption in your creature base and beat down your opponent at a reasonable, although somewhat slower pace. So key cards in the deck are then obviously Collected Company, uh, Elite Spellbinder as one of the you know, key disruptive pieces. We've seen this deck. Everything but Spellbinder was already available for this deck. And it's not actually, it didn't actually see play until Elite Spellbinder was released, which is why I picked it as one of the key cards. Uh, it learns Llanowar Elves and Elvish Mystic because, you know, it really values that speed up because a lot of its good disruptive pieces are three mana. So the ideal curve is Dork into Disruption into Coco. That's your ideal curve. And I'll quickly mention, uh, the deck also runs Great Henge. Okay, moving on. Brad, don't talk about Great Henge. <laughs> um, <laughs> hey, if you're playing the so, uh, the Abzion version of, uh, oh no. of Coco, you're probably not running Great Henge because you need the extra space to run Wasteland Strangler, which has a Wasteland super, Strangler. super cool interaction with Elite Spellbinder. If you Coco, get them both out, and you order the triggers to have Elite Spellbinder resolve First, you exile a card from their hand, Wasteland Strangler, get that exile into the graveyard, and maybe even kill a, a creature on along the way too. So super, super cool interaction um, that I love so, so much. Uh, maybe it's too niche. Maybe it's too narrow of an interaction. Um, but, you know, I like it. I, I love Wasteland Strangler so much. Um, so the type of player. So again, this is going to sound like, this is going to sound rude at first. So you prefer a play style that is sort of like more simple and in the way that the deck is hard to play, but it is a creature-based deck. You know, you just play creatures, you turn them sideways, you beat down your opponent. It is sort of like magic at its core. But you want to throw in some spice into that play style by running these disruptive pieces, by having hand attack in a deck that is Celestia colors, which is 
very un uncommon, right? There's pretty much no hand attacks in white until we had um, Elite Spellbinder. So I said this, if you could fully lock your opponent out of the game, you would. But alas, you're just going to have to kill them. And that is basically what this deck boils down to. It is creature-based beatdown, as you know it, but with a fun twist. So the way to beat this is how you beat traditional creature decks. Now, Coco obviously throws a little bit of a wrench into this, but that's the whole purpose of Collected Company. Uh, but generally, cheap removal, uh, sweepers work very well against this deck. And another really good thing against this deck is just to have good creatures on raid. Because this deck has a lot of creatures that, in terms of its power and toughness, cost one more mana than they should. Spellbinder is a 3-1. That's something we'd see on a 2-drop. Arkham of Emeria is a 2-3. Sounds like a 2-drop to me. And these rates are somewhat lower. So if you're just playing a deck with cards like Steel Leaf Champion, you're just gonna kill him. And that's a weakness of this deck for just traditional creature-based big boys, ramp them out with Llanowar Elves, something like Gruul is really good against this deck. It's like, what are you going to do? Make my three drop cost five? Cool, I've got four other three drops waiting. I'll just play those first. And I'd never have to cast this card because you're dead by now because I top decked an Embercleave. What a card. Because, I don't know, I'm a pro magic player and apparently that's the only thing I do, except I don't. Um, sorry, I had to throw that jab in there. The next deck is kind of two decks. And, you know, throw them next. Brad has way more experience with this deck than I do. Um... Junt Sacrifice being Junt Food or Junt Citadel. Now, Brad, give us a little bit of a rundown. How do these decks function at their core? You can talk about both. All right, so first we'll go over the traditional Junt Sacrifice being the food variant, and that's going to focus far more on the Cauldron Familiar and Witch's Oven game plan, or the Cat Oven. They're also going to run cards like Trail of Crumbs to, you know, empower that engine even more. Both versions will run Gilded Goose, and then you'll see, of course, Mayhem Devil and Low Strider to give solid sacrifice outlets. Now, the idea of this deck is just to be grindy. And now, it is similar in the sense of Rakdos uh, Pyromancer, of like being a grindier mid-range type of deck, but crank that grindiness to an 11, and then you have this deck. What was Hand Attack to? That's kind of the way the food variant works. The food deck basically doesn't run out of cards. Yeah. Ever. It will have two or three spells to cast every turn until the game ends. Then you have the other variant, which is the Jun Citadel version. That's actually my favorite variant of the two. And that's because at its heart, it's a combo deck and not a grindy deck. That doesn't mean it cannot be grindy. It most certainly can. But when you miss out on the food variant or the heavily leaning into the food variant, you still run Gilded Goose, but you don't run Cauldron Familiar and you don't run Witch's Oven for the most part. Instead, you run things like Catacomb Sifter. You run things like Zooport Cutthroat. You go far more into the go wide, create tokens, add more value pieces to the board game plan. Because you're also running Bulls of Citadel. And Bulls of Citadel is the six mana artifact that allows you to look at the top card of your library. And if you want, you can play it by paying life equal to its mana cost rather than paying its mana cost. Now, of course, 
that makes a lot more sense in the combo sense when you go look at Zulpor Cutthroat and you just kind of go off. You still run Mayhem Devil, you still run Most Rider, but you don't run things like Corvold as your finisher, which the other food variant does because Corvold is just the best food payoff there is. That's legal in Pioneer. When it comes to which one is better to play, um, that's a very big meta call. Would you rather be grindier or would you rather just kill your opponent in terms of like a combo? I would argue that the Citadel version is better against Niv, for example, than the traditional food version. Um, but the traditional food version is better against like things like Burn or other aggro decks as opposed to the Citadel version. And now, Alex, I'm sure you put down some notes of what kind of uh, player would like to play these decks. Yes, I mean, I think... Um, oh, <laughs> this is the only one where I didn't. I literally just wrote down, I don't know, Brad, you play this. Okay, well, if you like to be a grindier deck and make a lot of minute decisions that on the small scale are, in fact, small decisions, but they build up to something bigger and allow you to finish games, food is your game plan. If you like combo decks where you just, you know, outvalue your opponent without it actually being a traditional combo deck like a Kethis combo or a Lotus Field combo kind of thing, Citadel is more game plan. Also, if you like casting Coco for four life instead of four mana, play Citadel. That's that's way, way more fun. They both have pros and cons. You get into these games with food, I've noticed, where like Alex said you don't run out of cards. But I've had games where I have a Witch's Oven on board, a Trail comes on board, my color familiars are gone, that engine's offline. And I don't have any other creatures. And I just, I won't, I keep drawing more witches ovens and trail of crumbs and lands. And those are really unfortunate games where when it comes to the Citadel version, if you don't go into the Citadel game plan, you can still just be like a slightly worse sacrifice deck, if that makes sense. So give and take. Yeah, yeah. I think if you like the analogy, if you like commander games that are under an hour, you should play Citadel. If you like commander games that go over three hours, you should probably play food. Yes. Because the Citadel, especially the Citadel version, it has a lot of triggers and it is a deck that is like, it sounds it's really punishing for missing triggers. Because when you have like Catacomb Sifter, Woe Strider, Zulipur Cutthroat, it's, oh, gain a life here, make a token there, get a scry here, get a scry there. And you have like these... 100 small gameplay actions to take and if you forget a scry oh now there's a land on top of your deck and you you fizzled or you should have gained a life along the way oh you're at four and your top card is a coco you can't cast it now because you should have actually been at five yeah and that is also a thing obviously you know your opponent will probably help you remember uh you can but that does it's it it's like a certain style. It takes time. Um, it's very frustrating if you mess up and like your opponent notices and then, you know, like, you know, also when in doubt, call a judge, which do with this deck. But that, that can get like really fiddly and really annoying if it's not the type of deck you're comfortable with. It's definitely the deck where if you're new to it, do your opponents a favor, goldfish it a couple of times after gaining the deck. Get a feel then start or start playing and someone be like, hey, I'm new to this deck. Please help me learn it. Yeah, honestly, one advice that I have with this deck, because Alex knows when I first got this deck in paper, 
uh, I missed a lot of triggers talking about that. And uh, he would actually remind me like, hey, yeah, that Mayhem Devil is going to do a thing. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you're right. It does do the thing. Um, or I'd mistakenly be like, yeah, being, being a commander player, you get good at this. Yes. When it comes to gold fishing, one thing that I helped is I started with an established board. I put down a catacomb sifter. I put down a woe strider. And then I put down a, um, a, 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 a citadel. And I just see, just went to see what would happen um, and go from there. And then you kind of like play around with what creatures are on board. You, you know, drop the catacomb sifter so you only get single scry. And then maybe get a dork or two out um, because that happens a lot too. You do play Lanor Elves and Elvish Mystic. Um, maybe get a Mayhem Devil out or, you know, have, do it with an, see if you can do it with an empty board and see what happens. Play around with the Citadel and what could potentially be a board state you could have and then goldfish it that way. In addition to just simply goldfishing by pretending like, okay, turn one, I would do this, pass, hope I don't fucking die, and then continue. <laughs> and like, that's kind of how the game the game is early. <laughs> but once you get it down of what you're looking to search for and what goal you have in mind because if you get to lower life you need a Zulport cutthroat to help get you back uh, to going and counterbalance the lo- the life you're losing when it comes to uh, citadel so figure out what your goal is in mind with the deck and then just goldfish it from there or if you don't want to do this and instead of doing extra homework to play a deck, because you're like, Brad, Alex, what the fuck? I, I, I play Magic to get away from the extra work. I don't want to study my deck too much. I just want to play. Okay, then very simple. Play the food version. Say, cat, trigger on the stack. I'm going to sacrifice the cat, make a food, bring back the cat. And then just do that. Play that. There you go. Cook the cat. Yeah. Oh. All right. So the next deck, we alluded to it earlier. Uh, it's Is It Blitz? I mean, I'm calling it Izzet Blitz that is slightly deceptive because it's definitely not like modern Izzet Blitz with Manamorphose, Lava Dart, uh, Mutagenic Growth, Gutshot, those type of cards. It's not it's not that fast, but it is a fast deck. So it's the Izzet Spellslinger deck that is more creature-centric and in that way, and it drops the Phoenix package. So we're looking at a deck with Monastery Swift Spear, Soul Scar Mage, uh, Stormwing Entity, uh, sprite dragon these type of cards all these creatures that get benefits mo- mainly prowess um when you cast instants and sorceries so i'm gonna play a woman i want to but on the next turn i'm gonna play an opt and we're gonna shock your blocker and i'm gonna hit you for three with this creature which is a lot of damage for a one drop to do and that's basically what this deck is so it is the spell slingery deck um it basically went like, okay, Phoenix is a 6 out of 10 when my draw is good, and a 10 out of, I mean, when it's bad, and a 10 out of 10 when my draw is good. I would rather be playing an 8 out of 10 the whole time. That is basically what this deck is. Yeah, I think it fits into a very similar category of type of person who would enjoy this. Um, if you enjoy the Spellslingery archetype, but you either don't care as much for explosive games... Or you know that explosive games are like counterbalanced by an equal amount of games where absolutely nothing happens, and you would rather not play that, play this. It's picking up popularity. I don't think it's a poor choice over Phoenix. Phoenix is more popular, arguably more powerful, but granted, that swing I described is also a a thing that really skews with data. Because goldfish data is based on what 5-0 is a league 
and what tops a challenge. And decks that sometimes are 10 out of 10s will win challenges more often. Because if there's a whole bunch of people playing them, someone's going to have that 10 out of 10 draw. So in that way, it's the type of deck that spikes, where this deck can spike, but doesn't spike as hard. But aside from that, I think it's very similar to Phoenix. Um, with the this does this isn't actually a uh, a treasure cruise deck. It's an expressive iteration deck, which is a very key difference. Speaking of that, yeah. And if you listen to the Strixhaven uh, top eight, I think we did uh, a little while ago, and you heard me put this at number top five. Was it top five? Okay, you heard me put this at number five, three. Hey. No, you made a top eight because you put three cards at number five. Yes, that is correct. Okay, whatever. This was still my number three regardless. And you want to prove me right and continue proving me right? Because this was my best hit of that top five. I don't remember what my numbers uh, two and one were. I'm going to be honest. Uh, but I remember this being in my list, and I was like, yeah, this card's great. It's... I do. Uh, what, are, what is my two and one? My two was Devastating Mastery, and my one was Culling Ritual. Ah, uh, that, those, are, <laughs> those are misses. What was what was my two and one? I had Vanishing Verse at three. Yeah. Oh, no, I had... I think you had, you had like, Callous Blood Mage, I think? No, 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 that, that did not make my list. I had... So my number one was the combo. Oh, you had Light Scribe. Yeah, Light Scribe, uh, Leona Light Scribe, or Leona and Light Scribe, and then uh, Clever Luminancer were my number one. Clever Luminancer. Clever Luminancer? Yeah. Which that deck popped up. Um, I mean, if you don't want to play fe uh, Feather, you want to do Feather's Feather. Which that's again another deck a year ago that would have been on this list. Feather now it's not. It, it's just like Pioneer is like uh, Granite. It was the shared number fifty. I, I I this was a lot to write up this pre write up, and I thought I'll do the top fifteen. This deck, uh, I think it was Feather. It was named Boros Agro. I think Feather is tied with the number 15 we are going to cover, but number 15 is an up-and-coming popular deck, so I picked that one instead. So it is on the outskirts of the format. Still a great deck. If uh, I mean, we we played it when our little playtesting. Clever Woman Answer is awesome. Awesome. I mean, honestly, it's... The bomb. That, that deck is just this deck, but you're trading blue for white, and instead of going all into the cantrip idea with expressive iteration and, like, opt and things like that, you're more so going into the... Uh, Defiant Strike to draw a card um, and buff them. Fight is one for protection, Gur for battle for buffing, and then God's willing to just be like, your blockers mean shit to me. Um, to uh, just uh, just smack them around. Uh, you know, that's a good one too. Oh, and you get Luris. Protection as a way to make creatures unblockable is definitely underrated. Oh yeah, I do that all the time. I remember, I know it now playing humans where it used to run... What's the one mana card that gives you protection from a color, your whole team? Brave the Elements. Brave the Elements. Where gives all white creatures that. Yeah. And just the idea of like, okay, pro white, my whole block is um Yeah, like it'd be like, okay, Brave the Elements name, I don't know, white against your white deck. Okay, cool, my entire block is unblockable. You're dead. Anytime I'm playing a God's Willing kind of deck and I go against Crazy. mono anything, I'm a happy boy. I'm such a happy boy, especially mono green, because <laughs> it makes me laugh so hard. Because I imagine the flavor of it. It's like I have Sea Leaf Champion, I have Galta, I have Carnage Tyrant, and I'm like, I have one unblockable boy, and you are dead. It's just, just, <laughs> just kind of like walks in right past him, strolls along, 
bops you in the nose and you're dead. That's it. <laughs> All right. So speaking of a deck that does actually utilize a very good protection spell, um, Ors of Auras. So Ors of Auras is a deck that was popular. It came up right as in around Theros because this actually runs a couple of Theros cards. And when we were all doing invertery things and Uroi things, uh, I think it was Yuya Watanabe was the first one to play it. I don't know if it was the first one to build it, but I think... Yeah, it was in the small Japanese tournament. Yeah, the Japanese one was played... Those infamous one. No, yeah, the, the Japanese tournament was played first. Uh, the Pro Tour that was like featuring Pioneer. So it was seen there first. I think it was Yuya Watanabe and the... The name slips me of the other very famous... Ja well, I think mean, there's multiple famous Japanese players, but another very famous Japanese player. Um, but it is a cheap... Uh, a, a low CMC deck, it's a Luris deck, and it plays um, a one-drop, generally, and it just starts slapping auras on it, and it makes it a big boy with all the glitters, ethereal armor, and it counteracts the traditional downsides of um, auras by running um, SRAM, which says whenever you cast an aura, equipment, or vehicle, draw a card. So... Again, if you're familiar with other formats, you'll know this. This is our version of Boggles in Modern. Uh, there is, um, I think, Orzov or Azorius Auras. is a popular historic deck with Core Spirit Dancer in there too, which sadly, sadly for Boggles players, isn't Pioneer Legal. But it is that deck. It is the, I'm going to slap a whole bunch of Auras on a guy. And I mean, how would you, you know, what would you enjoy about this deck? I mean, it can be really satisfying to, like, turn your creature sideways and your opponent's like, how big is it? You count and you're like, it's a 15-15. And they're like, what? Because creatures don't tend to get that big. Mm -hmm. But in this deck, they do, right? You're swinging with creatures that are bigger than Emrakul. And it's like this random Elsie that is just strolling around on Theros being stronger than Emrakul. Um... It can be a very, even though its its protection is difficult, right? You, you always need to hold up a mana. You won't need to play around your opponent's removal. Um, that sort of thing is very important because, um, obviously, if your creature does actually die, you're back to square one, right? If they kill your SRAM and you're forced to slap auras onto a creature, you run into the traditional downside of auras. So where if the creature dies, it's like your opponent killed five cards. Um, you can have very vulnerable draws where like, okay, I'm going to have to play a one drop on turn one and I'll be able to protect it on turn two. But if my opponent goes Swamp Fatal Push, I have no creatures and the deck immediately falls apart. Yep. Um, that is definitely one of the trickier things about the deck. But if you like Protect the Queen style decks, if you like enormous hitters for 15-15 and putting lifelink on them, you enjoy this deck. I consider, when I played it, I personally am not a fan of the deck. Uh, playing it but i liked kind of the relaxed nature of it right it has this thing similar to burn where it can have these quote-unquote easy games um i think in that sense though there is a lot to be good at with the deck right there's a, there's definitely a lot of different lines to make mulligan decisions can be very difficult i think it is a fairly new player friendly deck also, if you're going into Pioneer, it is a relatively cheap deck uh, compared to some of the decks we've talked about. Um, it is, again, relatively easy to play. It doesn't interact that much, bar some hand attack, 
which can actually be very nice if you're new to a format. Right? Diving into a new format playing control can be very difficult. You'd rather be playing something linear, get a feel for the format, and Ors of Auras is a great deck for that. Even when you... Oh, we did an episode... This is going to be a long time ago, where we had a similar one to this. Getting into Pioneer, and we talked about the potential of mono-white Auras yep. being like a 20-buck deck which very easily upgrades into this deck uh, if you want to spend some more money on it. Great upgrade path. Um, again, not my style of deck, but I know people that really like this type of deck. Um, something I'd recommend to a new player. Even if you just play Mono White to get a feel for the format, and if you're like, I don't like this deck, but now I know what I want to buy, and then you could actually drop some money on it. And if you really want to play the Boggle style, you can always go into Selesnia or Abzan, to play Glade Cover Scout. Also, you can play Season of yes. Growth, which is just a really cool value card. So if you like Jun Food, but you want the games to be shorter, but you really like that engine of food, play this version with Abzan and play Season of Growth. You like that one on a green enchantment that will draw you cards till the end of time? Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Uh, it also, in a way, if you go to Celestia version, again, you get the, the quote-unquote Bogle, which is, you know, makes your game a little bit easier because you don't have to worry about removal. You can worry about other things. Um, and it uh, basically gives you SRAM 5 through 8, which is not available in the other version. We've talked about it in the past, going Abzan versus picking... Orzov or Celestia, Absons Auras, uh, Mana's a little bit dodgy. But hey, there hasn't been a lot of innovation with this deck for a while. Maybe you can, right? Maybe you take a shine to this deck. You're thinking, there's there's unexplored room here. I'm going to use this as my gateway into exploring Pioneer. Then I think there's probably a lot of exploration to be done in. Yeah, the downside about the Abzan version is uh, I've there are some lists that have 5-0'd online. The mana is wonky. The mana... The, I said mana. The mana is wonky... And it's also expensive because they want you to play four mana confluence because, you know, yeah. Ouch. And uh, if you're not like me, who has a problem when it comes to buying Pioneer cards or did, and you didn't bite the bullet to get mana confluence, maybe you don't want to play this version. So moving on to uh, a deck. This is this going to be similar because it's kind of like the love child of two decks here. We're talking Sultai or four color control. So if Demir control and Niftalide had a baby, it's this deck. Um, it, rep it runs a lot of cards that a Demir control style deck would run. We're seeing Thetal Push, Thoughtseize, some removal, some card draw, some counter magic. Same old, same old. Oh, no, 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 I'm sorry. But have you seen the meme where it's like, it shows someone get something and it's it's the, it's the, it's from some show or whatever. Or I guess it might be like one of those, uh, uh, those TV pastors or whatever. It's like, Lord, I've seen what you've done for others, and I want you to do that for me. That's literally a Demir control player playing against Niftalite and saying that about Bring to Light. Because <laughs> <laughs> they see the Valky interaction, they're like, dude, I could do that. I can do that too. And they did. Yeah. So, again, it uses Bring to Light. Now, it never actually gets up to five colors because it doesn't have to. Um, one of the main ones it pulls out is Valky, which you only need to spend two colors on. Or you can go into three or four to have a little bit of a toolbox in your deck. We might see the sweeper package be like one extinction event and one languish because you just pick up the one that is the best suited for the situation. And we might see them run a scavenging ooze or a jace or just some, some bullet card 
that you can pull out in the right situation. I think we've even seen Dragon Master Outcast, which is hilarious yeah. to pay five mana to get a Dragon Master Outcast on the field, which is a one drop. But that's the type of toolboxy idea that you can do. And this is exactly the type of player that would enjoy this. You like, I think it's because to me, it feels more like a Demir deck with the toolbox uh, toolbox aspect than it is a Niv deck with the control aspect, if you know what I mean. Yeah. It is more like Demir control, but you like that toolbox. And this is also a thing that becomes really fun to play in a local meta, where once you have a good grasp on the format, and you know a lot of the cards in it, a lot of the niche, weird cards you could be running in your toolbox, it becomes really fun to like think of tech to bring. It's like, oh yeah, this person always does this, so I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna put a slaughter games in my main board. Because I wanna, you know, get that get those three lotus players at my locals. Also, poor you if there's three local uh, lotus players at your LGS. <laughs> but there's three damage spheres in the Like side, that so. is That works. Um so that is the type of gameplay uh, that you would be enjoying with this deck. So how do you beat it? I mean, it's a combination of Niv and Control. So aggro, hand disruption, counter magic. That's the type of thing to get you there. Again, spirits, for example. Yeah, spirits would be very good against this. I mean, honestly, if you like the idea of Jun Delirium or Soulhead Delirium, but you'd rather play a better deck, this actually might be a good compromise. You still get that toolboxy idea. Um, I mean, if you really want to play Croxa, I don't blame you. But this is still pretty cool to work with. It's it's a it's an inverse version of uh, Delirium, basically. Yeah, it, it it has the same. It probably has a similar feeling to something what a Traverse Delirium deck would have. Mm -hmm. Also, but you don't need to achieve Delirium. You just have to achieve five mana. Five mana Valky is uh, pretty good. Yes, wins you a lot of games. Now, the next deck. And my, my general overview just starts with, oh boy, what deck am I talking about, Brad? I would imagine it's Lotus. Yes. Okay, so I've probably expressed this as I do not like Lotus as a deck. However, there's a lot of people who do. And I believe it's actually a pretty affordable deck too. Yes, if you go with the very, 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 very traditional and basic version of the deck, it's running about a buck thirty. Now, if you run the more modern versions of it modern in the sense of up to date as opposed to the format you're gonna get a little over 200 bucks when you go with the emerging ultimatum route so so how lotus works for the uninitiated so lotus field is just a land that taps for three colors uh taps for three of one color but when it comes in you need to sacrifice two lands so it basically only nets you one man uh one land drop so it shouldn't really take you up however if you start pairing this with Thespian Stage, which can become a copy of it, without having to do that sacrifice to lands thing, and untap effects like Hidden Strings, Vizier of, Many, uh, Vizier of Tumbling Sands, and Pour Over the Pages, you can generate what is known in the business as a fuckload of mana in one turn. So I've had it happen against me yesterday, actually. I was playing in our weekly event. My opponent untapped with, I think... I think they just had two lands in play, or they might have had just the Lotus. So you'd think Lotus, play a land drop, you've got four mana. They ended up with seven, cast an emergent ultimatum against me, and then ended up having another like 50 mana before it was like, yeah, you know what? You have half your deck in your hand. You have a hundred mana on your pool. I'm probably dead. And 
that is the type of thing that this deck does. It generates ridiculous amount of mana. It plays really expensive spells that could not be played anywhere else, right? There's no deck in Pioneer that runs Emergent Ultimatum, Peer into the Abyss, Omniscience. Like, those cards are only in this deck, which is part of the reason why it's relatively cheap. Also, a downside to this deck means is that if you spend your money on this, there's not much that translates to other decks. A lot of the cost is in cards that you'll play nowhere else, like Omniscience. But, and again, you generate a lot of mana, you draw most of your deck, and then you win in whatever weird thing you can find on Scryfall, right? There's like, you can double approach in one turn, you can play a Jace after not like milling your whole deck like it used to, just naturally drawing your entire deck and then playing a Jace, as you do. Uh, and through those type of means, you can just puzzle together. Y you can win when you've got your entire deck in your hand at infinite mana, right? Find a way. Yeah. I mean, life does find a way or Lotus finds a way. But with the Emergent Ultimatum version, um, what do you grab? Like, what are your three targets? Like, what did they grab yesterday against you? They grabbed Pour Over the Pages, Omniscience, and Peer Into the Abyss. Which one did you let them, uh, or which one did you say no to? Um... I eventually, I initially decided on not having them have omniscience, but this was in a friendly tournament. My opponent's like, you can consider giving me omniscience and pour over the pages. Because I have two cards in hand. I'm going to draw three. I'm going to see five cards. I might brick. If you give me pour over the pages to untap my lands and let me draw half my deck with Peer into the Abyss, I will probably stitch together a win guaranteed. Ah. So I gave them the omniscience and the pour over the pages and they had another ultimatum in their hand and i lost <laughs> but, but like that is you know the nature of the game right? i mean that that's actually if i would have given them i would if i would have not given them omniscience they would have stitched it together too so it's not like my opponent was trying to angle shoot me or anything none of that yeah but like the thing is when they play emergent ultimatum it gives you the illusion of choice because you're very likely to be dead when that card goes off. Because again, there's a hundred ways to build it. Some people put a bunch of turn spells in their deck. Some people just put a bunch of value cards in their deck. Again, whatever big expensive spell you want to cast, you put an ultimatum on the stack, you have probably won the game. Maybe I should uh, throw the... Uh, I do have foil emergent ultimatums, Alex. I could put those in my Lotus deck. I, I, of course you do. I have... <laughs> I mean, look, I, I saw it and I was like... Why is no one playing this card? It's kind of cool. How much are the foils? Wow. Like a dollar? Cool. I'll get those. And they've been, they've been chilling in my binder. Yeah. And uh, Yeah, I was surprised how cheap it was because I bought an Emergent Ultimatum for a Commander deck and I was like, why is this card 60 cents? It's a good card. Like, it was it was really cheap. It's like, okay, cool. I expected this to be one of the, like, a very expensive card for the deck, but luckily it wasn't. Oh. I guess because it sees a lot of play in Historic, at least saw a lot of play in Historic, which is a digital-only format, so nobody has to buy the cards for paper. What is the old, old version? Before we got, um, oh, was it uh, Season's Growth or whatever? No, not Season's Growth. What was the card? Season's Season Past. Passed. Season Past, and then... That, that wasn't a traditional one, but it was a way to build it. You went Dark Petition, Season's... Well, no, it was before Breach. Before Breach. It was it Dark Petition, Season's Past, and some sort of Black Recursion spell, because you that's what you did with... I think it was something that netted you mana. They, they lose. And then if they gave you Season's Past, you can cast that. 
And if they gave you dark petition, you would dark petition, search for your seasons past, and then pair it with the other card, and you'd be able to cast it again. It was it was something like that, hmm. where you could loop it. Maybe not. But I I forgot what exactly. Hey Roberto, I know you don't play Pioneer anymore, but if you for some reason are uh, you're listening to this, uh, please, because I know you played this version of uh, Lotus many moons ago. Please, please tell me what it is. I want to kind of do that with uh, Emergent. I think he got I think he got someone to rage quit the server because he didn't like playing against the season's past version of the deck. Oh, I liked it, but I I, I did like that one for creative deck building. Um, so to go over like. What type of player enjoys this? Now, I, I again, I wrote down, I have no idea what makes for a Storm player. All I know is that I'm not one because I have played Storm. It is similar, I suppose, to something we talked about with other decks. It's the puzzle, right? You need to really piece together a win. There's strange lines and like how to get to that mana, right? My opponent yesterday was thinking, okay, I start with a, what was it? I think they started with a breeding uh it's not breeding what's the fastland version botanical sanctum yep. and a lotus field and they're like with the cards in my hand how do i piece together a sultai ultimatum here right how do i get to that mana what do i do okay spend this make it blue first and spend that on that then make it green then make it black blah blah blah. okay cool my spells cast now and if that's a thing you enjoy that puzzle aspect then you're gonna enjoy this deck it's kind of similar to Storm in that way, where there is fun in, like, piecing together a win. And I almost feel like the more you're struggling, the more you like this, right? Nobody likes, in Modern, I think there's no one who plays Storm who really enjoys the games where you go, because I've played this, turn to Burrell, your opponent doesn't kill it, you go Ritual, Ritual, Manamorphose, uh, Gifts Ungiven, and you make, quote-unquote, the stack, also known as, it doesn't matter which one you pick, you're dead if you're not interacting. Yeah. And you put that Gifts Ungiven on the stack and your opponent concedes the game because they don't have interaction and it doesn't matter anymore. That's not the fun games. The fun games is when your opponent has like a bunch of disruption pieces and you're on a clock and you don't have time to set up. You need to go now. How do I piece this together from this strange hand full of weird draft cards that nobody plays in other decks? And... I assume that to be the fun of the deck, but you know more about this than I do. I mean, the the deck's fun if you like combo. If you like combo in the sense where you have to work to it, like you're saying, it's not just autopiloted. Um, I mean, we we did this thing where it was myself, you, and Risen. We all took out our uh, combo decks of formats. <laughs> Yours was the popper one. Risen's was uh, modern, I believe. Modern, yeah. And then mine was Lotus. And uh, you guys are both done with your combos and you already got your win. I'm still on the same turn and it took me 15 minutes to just be like, yeah, I fizzled. <laughs> and we kept going. Yeah, but but there but there, there was an issue with how you played the deck, Brad. Yeah, I, I couldn't read. Do I, uh, I was not reading um, uh, Hidden Strings correctly. Hidden Strings. Because Hidden Strings says, you may tap or untap target permanent. Then you may tap or untap another target permanent. And my monkey brain was like, tap or untap one Lotus Field, call it a day. And now technically, I was playing the card correctly because it is a you may. <laughs> you don't have to untap the second one. <laughs> but I was playing on super hard mode for like the first few weeks that I had the deck of just being like, yep, untap a single Lotus. Can we get there? No, let's try it again. But now that I have seen the light and have read the card, 
because reading the card does actually explain the card, despite what others may tell you. It's qu- except if it's a companion. Except if it's a, yeah, they don't they don't have that on the rules text. <laughs> but uh, also, I saw someone cipher their hidden strings a few days ago on a stream, and I was like, I fucking forgot you could do that. Why are you doing that? I, and I and it, it never came. They, their opponent conceded, and I never saw what their line of thinking was to cipher. Uh, so that was cool. What did they cipher it on? Uh, they ciphered it onto a um, was it like Barol? I think they ciphered it onto a grazer. Can wait? A grazer can attack, right? It doesn't have to fend. No, it? yeah. It, but wait, was it? Crazy? But I think it has to do combat damage to cipher. Or... Oh no, no, they said no, no, no. I'm sorry. They ciphered on Niv Mizzet Perun. That's what it was. I mean, if you're gonna swing it with your flyer, you might as well get two two untaps out of it. Yeah. Or no, actually, I know why you do that because I've had this done against me. They ciphered it onto at this time it still played Seder Wayfinder, and because this was when Theros was just out, and I was playing against a deck, and they ciphered it onto their Wayfinder, and I was like, I also had a case of reading the card explains the card, and they were attacking. I was like. It's all sorcery speed cards. I don't really care about giving you two mana in your combat phase. And then he would like, okay, tap your two lands. I was like, wait, what? Yeah, tap your lands. It says tap or untap two permanents. I was like, well, shit. Yeah. And then I was tapped out in their second main phase and they comboed off and killed that's, me. So, that's cute. <laughs> I'm, okay, I'm going to be real. I prefer... It forces you to throw removal at a Seder Wayfinder rather than keep up. Yeah, interaction, which is actually kind of interesting. I prefer the breach version of Lotus because at least it killed you. Same. At least it killed you. Surprisingly, same. Yeah, I was like, okay, at least, at least I'm dead. Yeah, cool. And and Dampy Sphere still did really well against it. And you're like, cool. What you got? Or uh, Exile Graveyard Effect. You could bring in Rest in Peace against Lotus at that point because they're they were a graveyard centric deck. That's like, okay, yeah. You could bring in Naturalize. Yeah. Just blow up the breach. Yeah. Man. Except they went big brain. And if they had the mana for it, the first thing they would do is breach out a second breach. And then you know you were dealing with a good Lotus Breach player. Uh, Lotus Breach player. Do you think it would have been the top deck if, uh, if it was still around? If they banned everything else? Yeah, probably. Hmm. Um, because it was easier in the sense that it was deterministic, which meant that the moment you just went for your Fae, you plucked a Tomescour out of your sideboard, and now you won the game. Yeah. Which was a one-mana card. So in that way, I think so. But let's move towards some of the later decks. We've got two more to go and then two honorable mentions, one we've alluded to earlier. So here is Gruel Aggro. Now, Gruel Aggro does Gruel Aggro things. To um, to quote Borborykmos in the flavor text of Protean Hulk, caps lock on, meat and eggs we eat. And that basically boils down to what Gruel does. It is a beatdown deck in the most traditional sense of beatdown. It is just the beat the ever-living hell out of your opponent deck. And they finally figured out the numbers. Do you remember for the longest time, for like the last year? Yeah, where they run two Glorybringer and two Questing Beast, which made no sense. And two Bushwhacker. (laughs) It was weird. Now, they're finally running four Elvish Mystic, four Lanor Elves, four Burning Tramissary, two Gallia, four Bonecrusher Giant, four Goblin Rabble Master, four Gruul Spellbreaker, two Clothis, 
four Reckless Bushwhacker, four Targus Command, two Ember Cleave. Fucking kill them. Go kill them. Hey, and look, in both weekends, in both challenges, a Gruul deck top aided once they figured this out. Why the, the simple trick to put four Bushwhacker in your Bushwhacker deck? <laughs> I don't get it. Like, why Why were they so, fucking around the numbers? So Brad read out the list. So if you were very quick, very quick on it, you now figured out how the deck works. It is, again, a very traditional Gruul aggro deck. It goes, which is something that Gruul has done a lot in Pioneer, it goes one into three. It plays a dork on turn one, and it starts smacking you around with three drops on turn two. Uh, on turn three. Uh, yeah, on turn two, it'll start smacking you around with three drops. There are some backups. You've got Burning Tree Emissary, which I guess could still go on top of your three drop on turn two to make even crazier turns. Uh, you've got uh, Galia of the Vast. Um, you've got Goblin, uh, Goblin Bushwhacker. And then it runs a Tarkas Command, which is just all your creatures get plus one plus one and you'll do three to your opponent. Yes, there are two other modes on the card. Nobody uses them. Hey, 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 hey. Your opponents can't gain life this turn is pretty good. Oh yeah, that's actually good. No, that's actually good. I forgot about that one. I thought of the land drop one. I was like, yeah. Yeah, don't dis don't disrespect the Tarkas command. Tarkas red is still a thing. Well, I mean, just deal three to your opponent and pump your board is already really good. So I was... Yeah. I guess I was not giving it enough credit. Anyway, so go wide, lots of creatures, Atarkas command them, oh look, my Rebel Master is actually a 7-2, a and now I'm going to slap an Ember Cleave on it and you're dead. Because it also runs Ember Cleave, because of course it does. And the thing about this deck is you do not play Luris because you want to play the three drops, and that means you can play some nice, wonderful, spicy cards in your sideboard. We see some four-mana Chandra, Torch of Defiance, Rampaging Ferocidon. We see Shifting Ter uh, Ceratops, which is just, oh, oh, I missed that boy. And of course, we see Alex's favorite card in the history of ma uh, magic. It is Toski, Bearer of Secrets, coming in hot. Now, okay, would you rather play the Toski here in the four-drop slot? Or would you rather play Hazaret? Toski. Mm. I think you want Toski in matchups for value. Also, Tos uh, Ember cleaving a Toski is hilarious. <laughs> um, and uh, if your opponent board wipes you, and then you're like, okay, attack you with my squirrel, give it a ha give it a sword, and now I draw two every turn. Um, so that's great. Um, the thing is, Hazaret just helps getting your opponent more dead. Which the deck is already doing. Yeah, that's fair. So if Hazard would be good at killing your opponent, it would be in the main deck. Because that's where all the kill your opponent cards go. Um, but if you like Gruul, I mean, do I have to tell Gruul players they're Gruul players? Right? No. You can pick Gruul players out of the crowd. And then it's not an insult that it's just people who are really passionate about an archetype. And it's actually something I love. Right? There's there's a guy in my LGS and he's he just, well, my old LGS. And he's just, he's Mr. Gruul. He's kind of what I do with Grixis. One of his commander decks, his first one, obviously Gruul. If Gruul works in a format, this guy plays Gruul. And I don't know, it just get your opponent dead, smack him in the face, you know, take names, games end soon. I mean, honestly, let's be fair. Time. Let's be fair. Time to eat. We gotta, we gotta talk about the potential closeted Gruul players. They exist too. Okay. Sometimes they, they, you know, they're not ready to come out, but hey. If you don't know if you're a Gruul player yet, you think you might be, you've been curious, and you like aggro decks where you kill your opponent, but you also like the ability to play really big things that makes your opponent say, well, fuck, when it hits the board, then you'll probably want to play this. You don't get that oh fuck moment when you're playing against Burn, because the closest thing to that is like, you're at three life, they top deck a lightning strike, and you're like, 
But instead of saying, oh, fuck, we just simply go, yeah, I'm dead. You got there. You did it. Because the expectation was that you would top deck. Where on this, you can play all these different wonderful, cool creatures. When they see Toski and you're, you're, you're like staring at this uh, board wipe, you're like, you're still going to draw your cards. Or you see Hazard, or even a Glory Bringer. Or if you're feeling really adventurous and you just randomly drop a Galta, and they're like, huh, yeah, I, I don't have removal for that one. I don't at all. I brought in Fatal Push against you for some reason. <laughs> so, yeah, play Gruul. And Goblin Rabble Master is a great card. Um, so, how do you interact with Gruul? Well, it's kind of easy. You go for cheap interaction, because they try and kill you soon, so you're going to have to try and stop them. Um, so, Fatal Pushes, obviously, again. the There are alternative Gruul, uh, alternative Gruul draws that don't do that 1-3 to three skip, so it's not like you actually time warp them by doing it. They do have other plays to make, but generally denying them that one to three jump is huge it will often buy you a turn in terms of life even though they do something on turn two you're literally going to take like five less damage because you did that and you're going to like win the game on three so it did kind of buy you a turn um then also strong blockers again gruel is a very traditional deck in where it has to turn its cards sideways so good blockers like gifted aetherborn or to a lesser extent, Kalidus, but sometimes they literally get too large for Kalidus, especially when they start, like, blood-rushing Gorkland Rampagers and that sort of thing. Um, but that works. Just cheap interaction, good blockers. Um, there's a hefty amount of haste in the deck, so board wipes aren't as effective, right? They can definitely... You go for a board wipe, and they go, like, Rebel Master Bushwhacker, and you still take, like nine so those draws don't always sweepers don't always work you generally want to get on the board and match them on the board that is generally the best way to go about playing against gruel maybe don't don't focus too much on keeping the board empty but focus on building a board yourself like i've generally done better against gruel when my sideboard contains creatures rather than more non-creature spells like I might want against Burn with a card like Collective Brutality. Now, for our last card of the uh, deck of the official list, um, we're going to look at some very um, creative deck building. And we're looking at Jeskai Indomitable Creativity, a deck that people might have seen in Historic, and that in the last week or two has popped up in Pioneer. I'm actually going to very quickly up the list so i can read out the cards because there might be some people that actually aren't familiar with this deck even if you are an established pioneer player so going to popular decks pioneer i have to i think it literally just got updated yes so they're in a different order uh, <laughs> yep um yeah it literally got updated just okay cool um literally already not in the right order as we're recording so, it is a deck that generates a bunch of tokens. Could be treasure tokens, human tokens, that sort of stuff. And then it casts Indomitable Creativity, where X equals 2. And what it does, it basically transmogrifies slash polymorphs your two creatures until you reach uh, X amount of artifacts or other creatures in your deck. Now, the deck obviously runs no artifacts, and it only runs two creatures. And those two creatures are Sage of the Falls and the Locust God. Now, Locust God, people might remember, 
6 drop, 4 4, flying. Whenever you draw a card, you create a 1 1 red insect creature with flying and haste. Red and blue insect creature. And Sage of the Falls says, whenever it or another non human enters the battlefield under your control, you may draw a card. If you do, discard a card. So the way this works is that the Locust God, well, you're going to get both creatures entering the battlefield. The Sage of the Falls will seize the Locust God and itself, enter the battlefield, and it's going to draw you a card. Now, and then discard a card. That draw is going to trigger the Locust God because it sees you drawing a card. And it's like, have an insect with haste. And because that enters, it is a non-human, so the Sage triggers. And it draws you a card, then discards a card. Locust God is like, hey, you draw a card. Here's an insect. And it does this for as many times as you want, because very importantly, the Sage of the Falls says you may draw a card, which means you're allowed to say no. And that means this combo stops at one point and stops before you draw your entire deck and lose the game. And what this does, it gives you a amount of one ones with haste equal to the amounts of cards you've drawn. And this is also a Yorion deck because... It actually doesn't want to find the two creatures. Now, if it does, it can put them on the bottom with Valakut's Awakening. So there is a backup there. Um, but because of that, and you polymorph into these two creatures, then you draw, let's say, 40 cards. And that means you have 41 ones with haste. You swing, you kill your opponent. That's the way the deck works. It is referred to as one of those classic twin decks because I take one card and another card and I put them together and I instantly win the game, just like Splinter Twin. With the upside that this actually only needs one card because the one card will search up the other two cards. So in that way, you can actually just pay five mana and win the game instantly if you've got two tokens out. Which is in a meta where there's quite a few decks that actually tap out, like Niftalite, is actually really good. Because if your opponent ever taps out, they instantly lose the game. Now, there are some caveats to this deck uh we'll talk about it a little bit but let's just again we've talked about what the deck does it's this one two combo deck and the person who likes to play this is at their core most likely a control player because it plays a very controlling game plan we're seeing you know um we're seeing some counter magic we're seeing narset um so again fire prophecy absorb fire prophecy actually another way to put combo piece on the bottom of your deck uh opts sensors uh, then some Omen of the Sea, Omen of the Sun, Shark Typhoon. It has a controly plan. But once it sees the opportunity, it'll immediately just like fire its silver bullet to win the game. So it's a control deck, but it doesn't like that control decks need 15 turns to win. Like, no, 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 I want to be a control deck. But once I have a winning position, I want to actually instantly win. And it's a deck that therefore punishes these grindy decks, where, for example, traditional control decks might struggle against Niv, because even though the counter magic is effective, once one threat sneaks under your counter magic, you're really far behind in an instant. And this deck doesn't have that, because, okay, tap out, let's fight over your Niv. Oh, you've used some counter magic, your Niv resolves. Oh no, creativity, you're dead. Um... So, again, key cards of this deck, Indomitable Creativity, Sage of the Falls, the Locust God, and anything that makes tokens. 
because it doesn't also matter what type of tokens they are, they can be treasures, soldiers, whatever. I think they can be enchantments. Yeah, it's just artifact or creatures. Also, if um, if you like to play four color fires recently in Pioneer, you would probably also like this deck. It, it, it scratches the Jeskai itch that some people have. Throwbacks to a control deck that probably wasn't good for two years already before people realized hey, if it. we got Lightning Helix, Jeskai would be a real deck. Most likely. Like, that that would just make or break it. Like, look, that's what happened in Historic. They got Lightning Helix, and all of a sudden, it's a deck. You know how we were doing the Teamer stuff with Magma Opus and Torrential Gear Hulk? You just go for white yeah. instead of green, and you play Lightning Helix, and you call it a day. That's a good deck. However... If you want to play a cool budget version of a Jeskai deck that I think is actually pretty fucking good, Jeskai Cycling is underrated. We don't see it much anymore, hardly at all. The core is pretty cheap. The most expensive card will be, obviously, Shark Typhoon. Um, kind of important to the deck, the whole point of it. But it does play this control game plan. So you get all the good cycling stuff, all the stuff from Amonkhet, uh, things like that. And of course, you get the wonderful finisher, Alex. You know what I'm talking about. Zenith Flare. And it will one-shot people. Kaboom. Yeah, it's great. Um, that's a fun deck. If you want to play a Jeskai control deck, I recommend playing that, to be honest. Uh, if you don't feel like spending too much. And you've, got an, and you've got an excuse to play Stifle Birdie, your main deck. Yes, Nimble Obstructionist is uh, pretty good. All right, so how do you go about beating this new hotness in the format? Well, the easy one is to just not be a deck that taps out regularly, right? If you can hold up a any removal spell, really. The Sage is a 4-drop, so it could literally be a Revolted Fatal Push. Fatal Push, a Heartless Act, an Aether Gust Postboard, a Bound Spell. Any of this can very easily disrupt this call. Sage is a 5-drop. Uh, oh, I thought it was a 4-drop. Okay, so you can't push it, but... Um, Still goes for any of the other cards I just named. Uh, but thanks for pointing it out. Uh, Exile-based removal is needed for the Locust God, because if you just kill it, it just goes back in the deck. Um, but it's not like the gods from Hour of Devastate, uh, from War of the Spark. It does actually go away if you exile it. Um, and the other way, you could just interact with Indomitable Creativity. You can use cards that stop things from entering from the deck. But mainly, don't tap out have some counter magic, have some removal. Extraction effects can instantly kill the combo aspect of this deck. Um, but in a similar vein to Phoenix, if you only sideboard with the combo in mind, you're just going to lose to 1-1 tokens and Shark Typhoons. Because it contains Shark Typhoons, which 4, which makes tokens. Uh, Omen of the Sea makes tokens. Uh, Secure the Waste makes tokens. Elspeth makes tokens. It has Yorion to reset a lot of these things. Elspeth has Escape, so you're going to have to deal with multiple copies of Elspeth. So if all you do is think like, oh yeah, I'm going to bring in a Slaughter Games, I stop the combo. Like, yeah, you've stopped the combo, but if your deck cannot deal with 100 1-1s, you're just going to lose that way. So that is definitely a thing to keep in mind. Again, a thing that can work here, for example, is... Just having one good creature, right? One Baneslayer Angel kind of immediately stops this bunch of 1-1s game plan. 
unless they start cycling enormous sharks, right? But you have like, I mean, I don't know what deck would have this. You have like Vanishing Verse and Baneslayer Angel. And you're kind of good to go against this deck. Sounds like Esper Control siding in Baneslayer. You obviously need to. Right? Yeah, like something like that. I mean, Baneslayer is obviously, it is vulnerable to other things. You know, it's expensive. It can be countered. They might be able, if they know it post-board, they might bring in Supreme Verdict. But like, there are, that type of game plan could work. You might be able to find another evasive threat. Uh, obviously, also, it just works if you find ways to disrupt the combo, but do actually also win the game yourself, right? If you play an extraction effect, if you play, like, a Slaughter Games in Junt Food, well, now you've got, in Junt Citadel, now you've got the Slaughter Games to stop their combo, and now you've got your own combo, and that will get you there soon enough. That is a good type of way to attack this deck. It's definitely a Metacall-style deck, punishes people for tapping out. This, for example, would have been a phenomenal deck if Teferi was still legal. Oh, yeah. Because it would stop your opponent from interacting, which is why I'm... Sage of the Falls is from Eldraine. Yep. So I'm a little surprised it took so long for this deck to show up, but that might also be just the, uh, the evidence of, first of all, the format being unexplored to some extent, and it just being a good meta call right now. Good meta call where people tap out very often. I mean, we even see it in like the four color or salt eye control deck, which will at one point would like to tap out. Even though it runs counter magic, it's like, yeah, but I'm going to take this one turn off to get this Valky down. And from then on, I'm going to be a Drago deck. But that one turn you tap out, you don't get to untap. And that's something this deck jumps on very well. Um, I mean, for example, one card that I am, again, not seeing in the sideboard of this deck, which would be a very nice one, is Silence. But that is a card I sometimes... People seem to forget Silence exists. It's a card I'm a very big fan of. But without going into how to tune this deck, this is the deck. It is basically twin. It is uh, up and coming. It's a Jeskai control deck with a combo finish, which is an archetype that people usually like. Not necessarily Jeskai, but control deck with combo finish. We've heard this before. Yeah, um, yeah, we have. And okay, Brad just sent me a list of Saltai Elves with Thrilled Mystic, which just weirds me out. That's why I sent it. But it is hilarious to have collected company, but then also have Thrilled Mystic up. That runs three mana confluence. I have almost everything else. Anyway, before getting distracted, because it's very similar to one of the decks that we want to quickly touch on that hasn't shown up in this top 15. The first one is Mono Green slash Simic Stompy. Now, this is a deck that occasionally show up, occasionally does well, uh, and falls in line with Orzhov, where I feel like it is a deck that is relatively friendly to new players, uh, to the format. Not even just new players to Magic, but new players to the format, because it just goes Lanor Elf into Steel Leaf Champion, it's got some Great Hench, it's got some Coco, it's got some Beatdown, and it's going to kill you. And running a card like Stubborn Denial, Decisive Denial from Strixhaven, if you dive into Simic, to have a little bit of disruption there. And that's it. Traditional beatdown. Um, a deck that, again, nice and straightforward, uh, which is a type of deck that people can really enjoy. And it has just very powerful cards that are very good on raid. Uh, Old Growth Troll, to obviously joining the fray after uh, Kaldheim released. And for the last one, semi-two, 
decks to talk about is that as a lot of people who might have played Pioneer in the past have heard like, oh yeah, Mono Black is regarded as that deck that's always there. Well, it's not right now. Mono Black has just slowly faded away. And at the moment, it is the... Again, this is going off Goldfish. This data will always have flaws to it. But it is the 14, 15, 16, 17, 18... I think it's counting correctly, the 19th most played deck. And Vampires is like the, I don't know, 23rd yeah. most played deck, which is almost sad to call it. It's it's more correct to call it like the 10th least deck played deck. <laughs> yeah, of established decks at least. So these decks have, yeah, these decks have faded away. Now, they always have a solid core. They've got Fatal Push, Thoughtseize and good on-raid creatures. I think the problem with the decks is generally that they might be a little too slow despite their disruption. Again, a deck like Niftalite um, is very good against these decks because their clock isn't super fast unless their draw is really good and all they have is hand attack, so they're vulnerable to top decks. And they don't have something ridiculous that something like Rectal Spiromancer might have, where they have the Arcanist draw, where it's like, oh, you don't kill my Arcanist? Well, I'm double thought seizing you on turn three. Or I've got Croxa, which is like this card that if I get to attack you once, you're probably dead. And these decks can lack that sometimes, which is why they don't show up. Now, I don't think they're bad decks, and it is a deck that a lot of people might have lying around if they played Pioneer before the pandemic, where or even at the start of it, when you know we could still play the LGS a little bit and stuff. And people bought Mono Black because it was a very solid deck at the time, and it really seemed like a mainstay in the format. And I think the deck's fine, right? It's still a solid deck, and if you owned Mono Black, I think it's wise to just dip your toes back into the format playing that mono black deck list also because the deck lists haven't really changed so if you have your main deck your main 60 and a basic array of sideboard cards talking like more hand attacks some graveyard hate feed the swarms like the standard cards you're good to go right good step back into the format i wouldn't recommend buying an entire different deck right run this a couple of times and then you know hopefully you stay hopefully you enjoy the format again and then you could look into something else i will say though when it comes to vampires if you have any interest in that deck whatsoever and you maybe already own thoughtsies maybe you already own you should already own fatal push but you already got your thoughtseizes and uh most of the vampires in that list are pretty cheap gift of the aetherborn isn't so much anymore it used to be this really weird like four dollar uncommon but now it's like a dollar so you're fine there night of the ebon legion is only a couple bucks um callous wedge isn't much kalidas is the is is one of the kickers he's he was almost 40 bucks a while ago but i think now he's like 20 so hey cool of course the big one is soren it's 18 bucks right now a few months ago it was 10 if you have any interest whatsoever if you have any interest whatsoever in playing this deck please buy him now because once we get as we get further away from M20 and we get closer to vampires with Innistrad coming out this fall, especially when spoiler season is up. This is a deck that could very easily 
be a card away from being right in the top five and being the next quote-unquote mono black that just refuses to die. True. And also, your Sorin might get really expensive if the uh, Morophon Sliver one-shot deck shows up in mono. Have you seen this deck, Brad? It is a genius of deck building. I have not. Oh my god. Can you send it to me? Do you see it? Do you have a list? All right. Uh, I'll try and find it. A friend of mine had it. A So the basic idea of the deck is that you run Morphon in Slivers, and you play Sorin, you downtick it, because Morphon is a changeling. Yep. But as Morphon enters, you name Sliver. And then you play Sliver Legion, which gives all your Slivers plus one, plus one for all other Slivers on the battlefield. Cloud Shredder Sliver, which gives all your Slivers flying and haste. And then you one-shot your opponent with maybe playing some other crappy Slivers or whatever. Because all those Slivers all have colored, only colored mana costs, which means Morphon makes them free. I was about to see what all Changelings are legal in Pioneer. And of course, Scryfall is uh, offline for maintenance right now. Why? I mean, oh yeah, trying to sadly more well more fun was in Modern Horizons, but there's probably other big changelings. Yes, I, I know I know not that. I'm always like, is what is the biggest Oh you're thinking now like what do I do with <laughs> how do I break sword? Brad, Arcan Adaptation. Anything is a vampire. Yeah, I know, I know, but that's that's Or that four mana tree thing. Yeah, but the problem is Arcan Adaptation is what? Three mana? I want give me that effect, two mana. Let me go turn two Arcane Adaptation or whatever that new card is. Turn three Soren, Emrakul. <laughs> oh, that'd be so much fun. But yeah, if you want to play Vampires, you have any interest whatsoever, please buy your Sorens now because they will go up. Yeah. They're random mythics from core sets that are good are never cheap. They just go up. All right. So that is our chat on the, um, if you're new to Pioneer, a brief overview of most of the decks that you're going to find in the meta. Again, there are plenty of decks that we missed out on. There's plenty of room for brewing, experimentation. It is part of the appeal of the format because it is very unexplored. But this is a grasp that hopefully gives you a nice step into the format and gives you a a way of where to go, right? Where to go, what to prep for, um, and how these decks work, and hopefully give you an idea of what decks you like. Now... I'm ready to move on to the mill back to start wrapping up. I don't know if there's something uh, you want to talk about, Brad? Nope. I'm just sad that Exquisite Blood is not in, uh, in Pioneer. Because having that one <laughs> that one of, one of Exquisite Blood in a vampire deck, when you can run Vito... With, isn't, that with, isn't it a one-shot with Vito? Yeah. It is. Yeah, it is. It's a, it's a two-card combo. Oh, come on, please! I've been a good boy this year. I've been doing great. Going to the gym every day, trying to get healthier. I've been going on a diet. I haven't been spending that much money on magic. Wizards, hear me. Give me an early Christmas present. Just reprint Exquisite Blood in the uh, Innistrad set with vampires. Perfect. On flavor, no one will give a shit except for commander players because it's a $44 card. Okay? You're getting a wonderful reprint. Wait, well, I own one. Yeah, it's, it is, uh, it's, almost, it's almost 50 bucks. Um and that's even with the jumpstart reprint, but I mean, does that really really count? But yeah, hey, come on, please, please, give me it. <laughs> What's an exquisite blood of the same precon as the fairy's protection? Because I own both. I own that vampire precon. God, best investment I've ever made. Um, Probably. But then, so we're not going to talk about the challenge this week. And I mean, we touched on it a little bit, 
basically just has to do with time. Uh, we want to wrap this up. And also, we have probably talked about every deck that's shown up in the challenges, because we have actually talked about, like, 19 different decks today. The 15 plus 10 random decks we touched on, so good chance if there's a deck that shows up in a challenge, you're like, hey, I want to know more about this. You'll probably find it somewhere in this discussion. Yeah, it was Banned Spirits that won, as well as the wonderful mashup of Demir Control and uh, with Bring Delight uh, with Valky. Those are the two winners of your challenges. We, and like Alex said earlier, Gruel showed up as well um, in top eights because they finally figured out their numbers. Um, yeah, all these decks we talked about, they showed up, uh, just not vampires, of course. But yeah, it is what it is. Only took them a year. Um, so moving into the mailbag, we have one question in our mailbag on the Discord by Astivicado, wait, 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 which we wait, have wait, seen. It. Wait, oh. stop it. Stop. Don't you dare disrespect Alex. Bring in the theme song. Do the jingle. Do it. Look. If you had one mailbag, one theme song. Sees everything you ever wanted. One jingle. Do it. Don't you dare disrespect Alex. Yo. Sorry for disrespecting the editor. Fucking troglodyte. Don't you dare. Okay, here we go. Sorry for disrespecting the editor and forgetting about the brilliant intros we always get to our mailbag. I think my favorite one might still be the one with the This Is Sparta one. That might be my favorite. No, hold on. The, the Taylor Swift one is really good. Where it's like the... Ah, oh, the Taylor ah, Swift one was really mailbag, good, Mailbag, mailbag. Oh, no, <laughs> and also the Pantera's Walk is really great. That was, that was, that was the most recent one. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, question in the mailbag. But I, I still wonder what he's going to do this week because he keeps coming up with more creative and strange things. Sometimes just strange. But seeing the changes brought about by Modern Horizons 2 and similar releases in other non-rotating formats, is there any hope for Pioneer to be the non-rotating format with only standard sets? So only fueled by standard sets. I like the idea of slowly buying into decks with minimal turnover and WotC has had an iffy track record on injecting power into formats. Hogak for Modern, Arkham's Astrolabe for Popper, whatever we <laughs> find in Commander Precons for Legacy. Alex, Alex, is this your burner account? Yes. This is your burner account, isn't it? No. Your, your Ace Avocado. No, it's not. Okay. Feels like you wrote this. Brad's on to me. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> so... We've talked about this in the past with Modern Horizons 2 coming out and other mailbacks we've had. I am not a fan of Horizon sets. I think Modern Horizons, I've seen a lot of, I've watched a lot of Modern Horizons coverage and stuff. It is very exciting, but I would not be happy with it if I was a modern player. Um, I think it's going to be very similar for this. I think at this point, Brad touched on this last week, there's definitely um, an idea that like, now that we have Pioneer, this might have like unlocked wizards to start doing these things to modern more because they now have this only fueled by standard non-rotating format again that, you know, modern used to be in the past. Um, I think the main thing is just like, honestly, is there any hope for Pioneer to be the non-rotating format? The realistic answer is no. Like if Pioneer, which I think it will, if Pioneer picks up again, becomes popular and sees lots of play over the years and increasing play, like how Modern got increasingly more popular, we're going to see a Horizon set for two reasons. Spicing up the format once it gets too old, right? Once Pioneer gets six, seven, eight years old, whatever, 
it gets increasingly harder for standard cards to make an impact in the set. Especially if we're going to go back to somewhat less powerful standard cards, right? Yeah, like fire design. I think Ruckman spoke about it last week, and it's called it was called fire. I forgot what it stood for. I know the first one is fun, but which basically led to like broken design, yeah, uh, where we saw things like Eldraine and Theros. We're hopefully getting less of that, which further reduces the chance that standard cards have impact on formats the older they get. So at one point, Pioneer might be too powerful to be impacted by Standard. At that point, they want to inject something into the format to spice it up, which is, in all honesty, probably a good thing. And then there's money. They are a business first and foremost. Modern Horizons sells, right? Modern Horizons and Modern Horizons 2 are very popular sets. They're going to sell a lot if the boxes are available, which has been a problem with Modern Horizons. The boxes are ridiculously expensive. They sell a lot. They make Wizards a lot of money. Why wouldn't they? Yeah. So it's with the success, because still, and a lot of people also really like Modern Horizons. I know I'm in the minority. Um, a lot of people like it. It makes them a lot of money. It is a when question, not an if question, really. Yeah. But don't worry. That when is way down the road. They're not going to start injecting things in the format until it's shown that Pioneer is too far and away from what standard is. And when we get to that point anyway, fear not, because they said this in the Pioneer announcement. They said this, that they'll have to do this again at some point. Eventually, Pioneer will be modern, and it will no longer be the bridge between standard and eternal formats. So they'll come up with a new one in eight years, ten years. And then, if you feel like Pioneer is shit at that point, it's not the format you once fell in love with, go play the, uh, the new one. There you go. It is a cycle that will be inevitable. It will repeat itself forever. It's unfortunate in a sense, but at the same time, it's good for the game and it's necessary. I wanted to say something and then I my mind just blanked. Um, that happens. There's the power of editing. <laughs> what did you say again? We were talking about it's getting late. <laughs> Meanwhile, about- Alex actually adds in cricket noises during that silence there just empowers the oh that is perfectly fine that is that is literally just my thoughts are cricket noises currently so i can't uh... oh my god i've been sitting in this chair so long oh my ass is hurting my my right ass cheek is cramping this is this is not fun it's like i have a charlie horse ow thanks for guaranteeing we're cutting this out brad so we can cut out the cricket noises oh i don't know alex could keep it The folks at home need to know how my ass is. I mean, we we don't have to make a blooper reel if the bloopers just show up in the actual thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> God, now I've really got off track. Okay, now I know what I wanted to say. It won't be for a long time because, well, first of all, Pioneer has been in an uncertain position for the past year. We saw even Pioneer Masters on Arena, which is their like easiest way to make money out of things. They don't even need to design cards. And they're being slow as shit with it for some reason, which I guess might also be that they weren't sure about how well Pioneer was actually doing. So if the format wasn't going to be popular enough, is it worth to spend the time, I don't know, typing into your computer five minutes for it, your algorithm to put it in Arena? But whatever, right? Um... But that might take, before Pioneer establishes itself, might take another year. And in a year time, we'll look about like, oh, look at how good Pioneer is doing. Then when they start thinking like, hmm, okay, this Pioneer is really running very well. We'll probably 
you know, we should start thinking about Horizon Set. That probably takes two or three years before that's designed, printed, and actually in the format. So I would be shocked if we see Pioneer Horizons before 2025. Yeah, and another reason to consider that is, Alex, when it comes to modern, let's look at modern 2005. Is modern 2005 the same modern as it is 2011 or 2012? (laughs) Absolutely not. So do you think it'd be smart for Wizards to develop a or a, uh, I'm sorry, a modern Horizon set in 2005 to be able to come out in, let's say, 2008, 2009, because they're basing it on the philosophy of what modern is and the identity that that format has from 2005, because it kind of would probably no. be incorrect, right? Because the power level would be wrong, and then their standard sets are just power up modern naturally anyway. So that's another reason they're going to be a ways off from Pioneer Horizons, because Pioneer still doesn't have a fucking format or an identity. Still doesn't have an identity. Still is just the bridge right now. That Very, yeah, very sort of malleable, loose state. Yeah. Once we get... Not quite sure what it wants to be. Once we get pro players back in the format, once paper plays you know, back up and we have coverage on the format, you're going to see a format that um, could look really different. Maybe not 2005 to 2011 or 12 modern different, but different enough. That's a good thing, though. You should be excited for that potential evolution so with that i think we can wrap up our uh didn't go on for too long two and a half hours it's about normal for our track record well we were actually like two hours because the the first like 30 minutes is us just trying to figure what we're doing true i mean isn't that us every week my ass (laughs) it's so bad isn't that me isn't that us every day i mean it's me every day figuring out how things work i had to i had to get a get up early this morning for a covid test which i got back like three hours later and it was it was negative so that was a good thing yep. um and it really helped to just if i now do things i i hate myself for it but then at, on the day self i'll love myself for it i plan mandatory things like really early in the day so covid test oh i'll get it at eight because it forces me to get up because on days where i can lie in i've, I've been so bad recently where just like if I can have a lion, I lie in for so long. Oh yeah, I feel that. And then like my body has to figure out like how does life work if your breakfast is at lunchtime? And then I feel like such a bad person. And I'm like, um, come on, man, pick yourself up. Do you know how life works when breakfast is at lunchtime? <laughs> uh, fucking incredible. I love breakfast whenever, dude. My favorite thing in the world is going to a diner or a mom and pop style restaurant that serves really good breakfast food and just going there alone eating and enjoying myself i don't give a fuck if it's 3 a.m i don't care if it's 6 p.m i don't care if it's night or nicely at 8 a.m real breakfast i just want breakfast i am peaking if i'm eating breakfast whenever that's just not really a thing we do here brad you're missing out you really are it sounds great it's just not a thing we have here well you should you should do it i probably am yeah you should do it more you you don't have a, a a waffle house of europe kind of thing we're like, do you have a 24-7 diner that just serves breakfast all day? Or you could order breakfast at any time? No, I mean, I don't know. McDonald's, I think, does it, but that's about it. That's that's shameful. Okay, when, when you come to the States, I'm taking you to a goddamn Waffle House. I promise you, when we walk in, you're going to be like, am I going to get food poisoning? That's probably going to be the first thing you're going to think of. I'm going to be honest. It don't look that appetizing, <laughs> and it don't look that clean. But let me tell you. It's delicious. 
and it's the greatest thing. And if that doesn't say what America is, I don't know what will. And it's 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 top tier shit, top tier <laughs> shit. But real quick, reminders at the door. I'm going to rapid fire this shit. We are the official podcast of the Playaway Discord server. If you want to play some paper magic online with us over webcam, when it, you know, or use MTG Matchmaker, you can go ahead and join with us. Otherwise, if you want to be featured on the mailbag, you can go in the Discord and join on the mailbag channel. Yeah, that's how you got it this time. Or you can DM us on, fa- not Facebook, not Facebook, Christ, Twitter, Reddit, Discord, whatever. Also, social media. Come play away. Or... At Pi Respective. Follow those. Alex is Disciple Bullis. I'm Bradzifer. Follow those too. We've other podcasts. We're the Pioneer Perspective, of course. We have our sister podcast, the Pondering Popper Podcast, featuring Cali Kai's and Diego. We have merch, Pi Perspective Playmats, as well as Playaway Playmats on Inked Gaming. Again, sponsored by MTG Matchmaker. We love you. Thank you for the, uh, for the support every week, and we appreciate you more than you'll ever know. Hopefully, you'll. You know, you learned something about yourself today, what decks you like to play. And before we go, if you are back in Pioneer for the first time in a year or so, maybe a few months off, or this is your first experience with the Pioneer format, first off, thank you for listening to us. Uh, Also, I'm sorry that you're listening to us um, because we we do have a tendency to go off on tangents (laughs) and uh, it can be uh, it can be pretty bad. But. We love this game more than anything. Um, I recently took about a two-week break from Magic. Um, still doing the podcast, still talking with Alex, things like that. But I focus on other projects. And uh, coming back to it uh, the last couple of days has been really nice. I've actually been teaching uh, kids uh, at my place of work how to play and things like that. Uh, this is a truly wonderful game. And more people in this format that we love so much is, is, uh, is awesome. So again, thank you for your support. Thank you for listening. And we hope that you join us again next week if this is your first time uh, hearing us here. So until then, bye-bye. Bye-bye, everyone.